0: see some faces like that, uh, that was my same reaction when I heard that for the, same, for the first time. And I heard it from Boaventura de Sousa Santos, a sociologist in Coimbra, in the University of Coimbra in Portugal, and that was the first person I heard saying that, and I was also shocked when I heard that, that the canon of thought of all the disciplines in the university are Western men of five countries. Uh, I was super shocked to hear that. Then I started searching and looking around and it happens to be true. You look at sociology, you look at anthropology, you look at political science, you look at any discipline. The name change, but the nationality of the canonic authors are the same. And of course, uh, the gender are the same. There are Western males of five countries. France, when you go to sociology, when you go to anthropology, when you go to political science, economics, history, philosophy, anything that has to do with human sciences, you're going to read fundamentally a German, a French, a British, an American, USA, or, secondarily, an Italian. And so... The question is, how did we get there, okay? You know, how did we we get to structures of knowledge that are so provincial, okay? That are so uh, disguised as universal, okay? Because in fact, when you, the pretension is that the knowledge of these authors is supposed to be uh, And it's supposed to be, um, you're, you're supposed to master them and apply them. Look at this word, apply, elsewhere. But what happened with that is that theory is always produced in relation to social historical conditions. Theory doesn't come from a cloud. Human beings are always thinking from a particular location in the world and facing problems. Those problems you face are the ones who make you think about, okay, how, what's going on you know what are the wh- why is this problem emerging and how to solve it okay and what happened with this uh, with with this uh, epistemology where you have mesofite countries monopolizing the structures of knowledge of what i call westernized universities okay Uh, we need to to call things as they are. If you say the university, you fall into the trap of thinking that this is a neutral space. You fall into the trap of thinking that somewhere or another, you are here uh, learning uh, objective science as neutrality, objectivity as neutrality, okay? And, And then you fall into the trap of thinking that that knowledge is universal And you don't think twice exactly what what are you reading, who are these authors, how did they produce the knowledge, where are they coming from, you know. And so if theory comes from particular social historical experiences, that means that these authors were thinking about the problems of Britain, Germany, France, USA, and Italy. And the pretension is that those theories produced in relation to the problems of these five countries are supposed to give you the tools to understand what happened everywhere in the world. Okay, this is the assumption. So I call it Westernized university because it's a global structure of power. Okay, it's a global structure of power. Uh, it doesn't matter where you go today, uh, in which part of the world you are. After 500 years of European colonial expansion. You have westernized universities. That's why I didn't say the western university. I say westernized university everywhere in the world. If you go to uh, Rio de Janeiro, you go to New Delhi, if you go to Dakar, okay? if you go to uh, you know, Istanbul, or you go to any country you go around the world, you see the same structures of knowledge in the Western university. You go to a classroom in sociology, you're going to read the same guys. If you go to the classroom in anthropology, you're going to read the same guys. Because this is a a structure of knowledge that is today globalized with an institution that is called the Westernized University. I call it this way. Because if you say the university, or you say the social sciences, no, it's colonial Western-centric social science. That's what we're reading. okay? so you need to situate the knowledge and the structures of knowledge that are embedded in these institutions. Okay, so you can be—I mean, uh, Cambridge University, one of the quintessential Western West, Western universities, is uh, is also organized around, along those lines. Okay, and you could see anywhere you go: Paris, Cambridge, London, New York, San Francisco, Berkeley, where I'm coming from. All Western universities, or you go to the global South, you know, any, co- any university, you enter the classroom, you're going to read the same authors, more or less the same authors, because these are the canonic thinkers of the disciplines, and they're supposed to be scientific, and they're supposed to be universal, etc. But what happened? What happened is that if these theories are being produced in relation to the particularities of certain locations in the world, okay? Certain societies, etc. That means that their knowledge is a knowledge that is rela- in, in relation to the problems of these five countries, which are not exactly the same problems. Okay, in terms of social historical problems of or experiences of other parts of the world, of you know 90 percent of the world. Okay, where they, those regions, other regions of the world went through different social historical uh, histories. Okay? You cannot extrapolate just like that, the concept produced by these authors elsewhere, because elsewhere is another social historical experience that it, is not the same as these five countries, number one. And number two, because there, in that elsewhere, there are other thinkers that have thought about the social historical experience of these places. that have produced knowledge in relation to that and that they do not appear or show up in in any of the disciplines of the Western University, but they are considered to be inferior to the Western authors, these Western uh, authors of these five countries. They're supposed to be uh, subalternized in relation to these authors, even though these authors, these other authors elsewhere, have thought about what it means, what are the social historical experience of people in Brazil, or people in South Africa, or people in India, or China. But those authors are always out of the conversation in the Westernized University. Okay? Uh, I'm talking as a trend, because there's always individual professors that do an effort inside these structures to try to diversify their curriculum and their syllabus and all of that okay uh, so but that's not exactly what is required from them as a trend in their dis- in the departments in the department when you're evaluated you're supposed to master the canonic authors of these disciplines, and the canonic authors happen to be males and happen to be from these five countries okay so this Part of the, decolon, decolonial, uh, of the decolonial is to name things, is to, to, to also name things. So if I say to you, after explaining all of this, this is the university, I'm, I'm in a sense, uh, uh, contradicting myself. Because this is not the university. This is a westernized university. And if I say, this is, these are the structures of knowledge of, uh, the Western University of the university I'll be falling in the language of, of power that tries to represent these institutions as neutral. Okay? And so I prefer to say that the structures of knowledge of westernized universities I call them epistemically racist and sexist. Okay? The foundation of knowledge of this institution where we are I call it Epistemic racism slash sexism. Why I'm saying that? Because if you privilege a superior knowledge, the knowledge of males of five countries, that means that you are inferiorizing the knowledge produced in relation to all these problems by uh, people elsewhere in other parts of the world, okay? including within what we call the West. Okay? If you privilege only five countries, uh, there are other parts of the world that are not there. They're also outside, because they're not part of the canon. Okay? Uh, like people you know, like Portugal, or Spain, or you know, other areas of what we call the West or Europe that are not even included there. It's always males of five countries, okay? of these five countries I mentioned. These are the ones that have the epistemic privilege, and that have the legitimation, authorization, and the monopoly of what is reality what is truth and what is good for you okay this is what they are basically monopolizing no and, and so uh, the question is uh, so i call this also sexism because it inferiorizes also the critical knowledge produced by women too including women of the five countries okay including the women of the five countries also the conversation so You could see how the structure of knowledge we carry on in the human sciences, humanities and social science, in many ways are provincial knowledges disguised as universal. And I say provincial because the knowledge that we are privileging are theories produced in relation to the social historical experience of Britain, Germany, France, USA, and Italy. And, and then the rest of the world is, the social historical experience of the rest of the world is outside the conversation. And, and also, the people who have thought about it in, in you know, uh, have produced theory in relation to the social historic experience of other regions of the world. These people are out, are considered particularistic. Too particularistic, this is the way out. So if you go, for example, uh, to any department, let's say philosophy. You go to philosophy, they call it philosophy to the department here, right? In the Western University. You go to the classroom, you're reading only Western males of five countries. So to be honest, they should say, uh, you know, department of the philosophy of Western males of five countries, something like that. (laughs) Because otherwise, they're just deceiving yourself because you enter the classroom, it's called philosophy, but when you enter the classroom, you know, only men five countries while you read. What about other philosophies elsewhere, other philosophers thinking from Islam, or philosophers of Buddhism, or philosophers of indigenous people in the Americas, or other parts of the world, or African philosophers? That's out of the conversation. Why? They will tell you that this that's not philosophy. That's what they tell you. That's not philosophy. That's, then they class, reclassify their knowledge as, oh, that, <laughs> that's religion, or that's culture, or that folklore, or that is, uh, you know, they have all kind of euphemism to dismiss their knowledge and put it away from a, a being in equal footing with Western men of five countries, OK? So what they're doing there is dismissing and inferiorizing their knowledges and putting at the center the knowledge of Western magnified countries. okay, And I call that epistemically, as a foundation of the Western University, we need to name things. I prefer to call it epistemic racism slash sexism, because it's inferiorizing the knowledge of everybody. Okay? Uh, now, the question is, how did we get there? Because if you think that the knowledge of Western magnified countries, are the, the knowledge that should be taught as science, as universal, uh, as objective, objectivity understood as neutrality? That means that then, if you don't pose the question, you see it as normal and natural, then we're falling into a racist argument. Because then we're basically saying that the knowledge of men of five countries is superior to the rest. That is, we are in, in basically falling into the traps of saying, well, they are the ones who monopolize the knowledge because their knowledge is, in fact, better and superior than the rest. So they deserve to be where they are. Okay? That's one possible response. Now, why they deserve to be there? Because they're superior culturally or biologically or whatever racist argument you want to raise. Okay? Now, you fall into that trap that has a name, okay? and that's called racism. Okay, and so the, the reason I'm posing this question is that if you don't wanna fall into that trap and say we are cutting the structure of knowledge just because their knowledge is superior to the rest, you know, and fall into naturalizing and normalizing that structure, then you need to ask the question, how did we get there? What happened in history, okay, at some point in history something has happened where Western male countries managed to monopolize the knowledge structures of the world and managed to create the legitimacy, produce the legitimacy and authority over the rest of the world. And this is now a world historical question. What happened? How did we got there? And now I'm going to go over a narrative about history. And please bear with me because it might seem in my narrative as if I got lost, okay? So bear with me. I'm going to explain you a few things that then later on you'll see how everything is falling into place. And what I'm trying to do is give a response, a war historical response to this question, how it happened and at one moment in history happened that you have structures of knowledge that are so provincial, these guys are universal, and structural knowledge are so racist and so sexist. How did this happen in history? So it's not in, by nature that Western men are where they are in the epistemic privilege of knowledge production. It's something happening in history, it's historical. You need to historicize this to understand why it got there because you cannot say that there's no critical thinking about the same question they're, re- they're looking at elsewhere. There is plenty of critical thinking as, elsewhere, you know, from different epistemologies, from different cosmologies, from different geopolitics of knowledge, from different body politics of knowledge. There is a diversity of knowledge. And why is it that these structures of the Western university privilege Western magnified country? How did this happen? Why doesn't privilege men of other parts of what we call Europe? What happened? How did that happen? Okay. Why is it that we're not stu- you know, it's not the Spaniards or the Portuguese you see, or some people in Western Europe, you see what I mean? That privilege the structure. Why is it made of these five countries, okay? And this is what I'm, trying to, I'm going to try to answer. And I'm going to begin by my thesis to make a, you know, a, an overall argument so you know where I'm going or can follow what I'm trying to say, is that the, these structures of knowledge were produced that I've been describing here as sexist, racist, and uh, uh, provincial, were produced, and how they got the privilege was through four genocides slash epistemicides of the long 16th century. Okay? I'm talking about genocide, killing of people, destruction of human beings, and epistemicide, destruction of their structures of knowledge. Okay? This is genocide, epistemicide. And I'm going to discuss four okay, that happened in what, what is called the long 16th century. That moment between 1450 and 1650, 200 years, is called the long sen- 16th century. Because that is called the long 16th century. It's a moment of the foundation of what is called modernity or Western modernity. Okay? It's the moment of the foundation of Western modernity. And, and at that moment, at the same time, there are four genocide epistemics happening that I'm going to link to this discussion. But bear with me, because I'm going to go through a history that might seem as if I got lost. Okay? I will begin with the conquest of Al-Andalus. Conquest of Al-Andalus. Al-Andalus, for those of you who have not heard about it, is that part of Islamic civilization that existed in what is called the south of Europe, okay? And it lasted 800 years, and in the, what is called, you know, the last remaining stronghold of that civilization was in the south of Spain, in what is called today Andalusia, all of that, okay? Uh, that's a long history that I cannot go in detail, okay? It will require another, another time. But let me say the following, in the late 15th century, you have, at that moment already, uh, you have a, a situation in which uh, the last remaining stronghold of Al-Andalus is the Sultanate of Granada. They have already conquered most of the territory. It took 800 years okay, to conquer the territory. Uh, the way it happened was that you know, the Spanish monarchy, Castilian monarchy, wherever they went, okay, they will uh, implement certain measures that I want to go in detail, so you understand a little about what it meant, what is the world historical significance of the conquest of Al-Andalus, okay? And I think it has a world historical significance. I'm going through that, not because I have some kind of nostalgia of the past, but because we need to look carefully at the methods of colonization used in the 15th century to understand what happened later, okay, in the next 500 years. If the conquest of Alandal would have been that and it would stay there, and the Spaniards would have just stayed there, okay, probably would be like some, okay, some uh, uh, secondary point in history. The reason it, it, it acquires relevance is because the Spaniards, after conquering Alandal, went to the Americas. And then later they went to Asia, Asia. No? And then they went to, uh, to other places uh, Africa, Africa, et etc., all you know, the Europeans. Okay? But the beginning of the European Colonial Expansion began with Spaniards, the, the Castilian Christian monarchy conquering Muslim territories. Okay? And at that moment, you have uh, basically the following. The structures of Christendom and the structures of Islamic civilization at that moment in history having a border inside European territory. Okay? And on one side, you have a particular form of political authority, etc. On the other side, you have another form of political authority. They were different from each other. Okay? And this we need to talk a little, very fast, just for you to get a sense. Uh, At the time, Christendom, especially after, it's a long story, I cannot go in detail, but in the fourth century, when Constantine, the emperor of Rome, uh, decided to basically uh, turn into Christianity, make the Roman Empire uh, Christian, is when Christianity turned into Christendom. That is when Christianity became uh, an ideology of state power, okay? It's a long history, but the early Christianity was unitarian Christianity, Christianism. And the unitarian Christianism had the notion of what, we, what could be named in other cultures, Pachamama, in the Americas, indigenous people, the notion of difference within unity that you could find also in, Ubundo, in Ubuntu, in South Africa and the southern corner of Africa. This concept of unity with difference, OK? Or in Islam. This this concept is, you could see it in many ways in different cultures of the world. And early Christianity had that. It was called Unitarian Christianity. The emperor to to become, part of what happened is that that notion was putting in question the sacredness of the emperor and the Roman Empire. Because it was saying, basically, uh, you're not Allah. We are all produced and we are all a creation. No. I, I say alaha, because that was the term used by, by Jesus Christ. People don't know, but he spoke Aramean, Arami, and the, the word he, he used was alaha, Okay, So I'm saying that just to clarify, because I ask Christians what is the name Jesus Christ used to name God, and the majority of them don't know. Because what you have now, what you read, is a Bible that has been translated from Aramean to Greece, from Greece to to Latin, from Latin to Spanish, English, and the other language. And then what you get now have nothing to do with the early, uh, you know, with the early Christian Bible that was written in Aramean language, okay? It wasn't written in this language. In that translation, you have also cosmological transformations. Very important that you lost and you get the Greek cosmology Coming in to colonize Christianity, and that's what we get. We have a Christianity that's very Greek. We don't have a Christianity that is really Semitic, Aramean. Okay, and that's why you have then, of course, a, a, all kind of this distortion. But that's a long story that I cannot go into. Just to say, that the emperor, because of this notion, you know, we are all a creation of the same divine force, but nobody is that force. Whoever say, I am that force, that's falling into the problem of idolatry. And so the early Christianity was putting in question the authority of the, of the Roman Empire and the emperor who were saying, we are sacred. I say no, you're not sacred. You are as created as anybody else, okay? And therefore, if you're not sacred, you, you are not perfect. If you're not perfect, then you, have, you should be submitted to critique like anybody else. And that was the a great clash between this early Christianity, Unitarian Christianity, and became that became an anti-imperialist movement against the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire basically, after four centuries, said, if you cannot, join, if you cannot destroy them, then join them. And that's when Constantine decided to turn the empire into Christianity to, to neutralize the revolutionary anti-imperialist forces in the empire who, put, who was putting in question the sacredness of the emperor. Now, in order to do that, he needed to change the theology, because if he used the same theology of unity with difference that I just explained, he won't be able to sacralize himself again. In order to sacralize himself, he needs something else. He needs to now change the theology. Here is where Christianity turned from unitarian Christianity to trinitarian Christianity. and so. Here is where they invent the idea that Jesus is the son of God. Okay? And when early Christianity, Unitarian Christianity, always thought of, of Jesus as a prophet, not as the son of God. Okay? And he creates this analogy that God has a son in the earth, like Jesus, the same way that God has a representative in earth, the emperor. That analogical thinking is what they're going to be using to sacralize the power of the state, okay? And trinitarian Christianity also create a dualism, a dualism between the evil forces and the spiritual forces. That dualism did not exist in unitarian Christianity or in, in, in other cosmological like Ubuntu or like uh, uh, in the Americas with Pachamama, concepts like that that are concepts of cosmos. We are all in, there's no dualism. And therefore, what happened was that Christian Europe entered into 1,400 years of obscurantism. Because what happened was that with this dualism, anything that is different from the emperor or from the powers that be who are on the side of spirituality, they're pushed to the side of evil. So, for example, everything that is, Consider a, 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 a critique to the empire, or someone that discovers something, okay, in, uh, in in on Earth, okay, that puts in contradiction the dogmas of the Church, is immediately suspicious, being with with Satan, with being, being evil, and so they burn alive the scientists, okay. So that happened. Uh, Europe entered Christian Europe entered into a period of you know obscurantism over 1,000. 300, 400 years, something like that, OK? Long term of curantism, because it was on, they have a dualism between science and spirituality. You see, it was a complete dualism. That's why Europe needed to secularize, because they couldn't do science without secularizing. That is, taking away the authority of Christendom, of the church that was formed out of this uh, Constantine move. Okay? And so Christiandom became an obstacle for being able to, to think critically, to do philosophy. To do, if they see you with the book of Aristotle, they will burn you alive, and so on, OK? So just to say that that structure of power, when the Roman Empire de- declined and fades away, then it was a, a multiplicity of feuds, feudal lords, that reproduced this structure of power of the Roman Empire, of Christiandom, you know, fragmented all over Europe. That's the period called feudalism in European history, OK? And the feudal lords will make the same claim as Constantine. I am the son of God. I am the representative of God on Earth. And if you criticize me, I burn you alive, OK? And if you try to do something about, you know, scientific and that contradicts the, the dogmas <coughs> of the church, we burn you alive. So this is a period of uh, they will. No you know, women will be always suspicious to be with Satan. Okay? So they will always have women in you know as an inferior being inside that, that civilization. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will persecute women and burn them alive if they they will be thinking critical, I'm going to explain in a few minutes. Uh, they will also uh, uh, minorities, for example, of other religion or their belief or their identities, they won't fit there because they will be always suspicious of being on the side of evil. You see? So they thought of unity with homogeneity, okay? not unity with difference. This dualism created a structure where everything different was pushed to the side of evil. The rest are inside this unity with homogeneity. Okay? Now, on the other side, Islamic civilization in Europe is a long story, okay? because I don't have the time to develop all of this, but I, I am I, you know, this idea of the reconquest, I don't know if you heard that, the R E, the Reconquest. Uh, that was the, the rhetoric used by the Christian monarchy of Castilla to, to conquer Muslim territory. In fact, there was no Muslim invasion of Spain. Okay? That's a long thing to explain here that I can come back in the question and answer. But zero invasion of Spain. Okay? from the Muslim. This is part of what Eurocentric history is going to tell you, that there was a Muslim invasion of Spain in the 8th century, and that's how Muslims came to Europe. And that's a totally false history. It's not what happened. I can tell you what happened in the question and answer. I cannot go in detail here now, okay? because it will take me uh, longer. But uh, bear with me with this. We can come back to that question. okay? now, uh, that's part of Eurocentric narrative to justify the conquest of Muslim land. Later, you know, in the process of conquest, they use this argument: that, "Oh, we've been conquered. All we're doing is recovering what was took away from us." That's the argument used by the Christian monarchy, and it's a complete false argument. Okay. <coughs> now, uh, so in the Muslim territories, you have a Caliphate of Cordoba, and and also sultanates in different parts of Muslim territory in Europe. In those territories, you have a complete different st- structure of political power, okay, where you have a state that do not pretend that the population in the state have the same identity of the state. That means there were different identities coexisting, okay, and with rights inside the territory in Andalusia, where you have Jews, you have Christians, you have different uh, beliefs and different identities, and inside the caliphate they will have uh, they will have uh, they will coexist, okay, inside the caliphate, or inside the sultanates, so you have here a notion of unity with difference, not the notion of unity with, uh, with homogeneity, meaning by that, that the unity with difference means that people coexist Without being exterminated or repressed or pushed to the side or evil or things like that, okay, inside Muslim territory, okay. Uh, The other thing is that because of the notion of unity of Tawid, then you discover something on earth, okay, that is new, okay. Uh, It's not seen as a threat to the spiritual beliefs because all of that is part of the same Creator. And if you discover something new that the rest of human beings did not know about, then you are celebrated. You're not, uh, uh, you know, uh, put in question as someone that maybe will be working with evil forces. You're celebrated because you have discovered something that is part of the creation of Allah that we didn't know about. You see, so there's no pretension that because of the notion of unity with difference, you know. And the same thing you could see in other civilizations. At that time, as I said, Christian Europe falling into this obscurantism, and a lot of the scientific advances at the time was Islamic civilization, Chinese civilization. The, the Mayas in the Americas had the most precise calendar, calendar of the world, you know, who had, can predict a, a lunar eclipses, solar eclipses, you name it. You know, have a capacity of prediction that is amazing. But we don't know what, uh, how they got to that knowledge, but they burned the, the, the codices, the, the way of archival of knowledge, they burned them. So we don't know how they got there, but they, we know that it uh, has this, all this <coughs> capacity of prediction that is very precise. It was the most precise calendar in the world at the time. Just to say that science and development technology and et cetera, where you could find other civilizations outside this obscurantist, Christian, Christendom Europe okay, of the time. And partly because they have no problem with having spirituality and science, because there was no notion of dualism. Okay? It was a notion of unity with difference. Okay? Uh, so in Islamic civilization in, uh, in Europe, you have the, the, the scientists, while well, one side were burned alive, and the other side they were celebrated. Okay? Uh, in, 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 including philosophers, too. Okay? By the way, a lot of what is called Greek philosophy all came through the philosophers, Islamic philosophers, and Jewish philosophers from Al Andalus, from Andalusia. That's how they arrived to Europe. In Europe, it was forbidden to read a text of Aristotle for 1,000 years. Okay? That's important to know. If they find you with the book of Aristotle, they burn you alive. It was forbidden, the Greek philosophy. Okay? And I'm saying that because now later on they're going to claim their origins in Greece as part of the narrative to produce the idea of the superiority of the West over the rest. They invented an origin in Greek civilization that is totally mentioned because over a thousand years or more you couldn't deal with the Greeks. How could you have a memory of that and claim origin there when in fact you are... You know, you are—you have all already uh, censored those texts for a thousand years. I mean, how could you invent this idea? Okay, uh, so anyway, so you have, uh, in terms of women rights in Islamic civilization, there was the recognition of to divorce, there was the recognition of property, inheritance, and so on. Okay. As opposed to the other side, where women have no rights to property, no right to, to inheritance, and there was no right to divorce. Still, in Christian countries, you know, uh, divorce arrived very recently in the 20th century, in most of the Christian countries on the world. And there are still Christian countries that do not recognize divorce still today. But most of them went and accepted divorce as a right in the 20th century, very recently, okay? So I'm saying all of this because we need to understand Now, when we say the conquest of Al-Andalus, we need to understand what is being destroyed and what is replacing it, okay? And so that's why I'm going over this. So you know what is being replaced, as opposed, you know, to what is being destroyed, okay? So uh, so the... the, the, To make a long story short, we are now at the end of the 15th century. And part of what they were doing when we were conquering Andalusian lands was uh, there were people who were Muslim or Jews, uh, when they conquered the land, they will force conversion to those who survived or who accepted to survive. Those who resisted were killed. Okay? So you have an exodus of a lot of Muslim and Jews where to Muslim lands. Because in Muslim lands, Jews have the right, you know, have rights recognized, while in Christian land, they were not recognized, okay? They were persecuted, okay, as part of those evil forces that belong to the side of difference, okay? And uh, I'm saying that because a lot of the narrative we have today, especially Zionist, Orientalist narratives, make, make us believe that. There's been, you know, that what you have in Palestine today is a conflict between Jews and Muslims that they don't understand each other for a thousand years, and the most anti-Semite people are the Muslims. Well, this is history upside down, because in fact, Jews persecuted from Christendom over centuries, where did they go? They go to Muslim lands, because that's where they have their rights recognized. In Christian Europe, they were persecuted. Okay? They were killed. They were tortured. They were, so they, they, they went to Muslim land. So if there is any case to make about antisemitism, in any case, it to come from Christian Europe and later sci- sci- pseudo-scientific Europe. we okay? uh, were the ones who always were after the Jews. And Jews were always running away to Muslim land from the pogroms, from the extermination, from the massacres, of Christian Europe for a thousand years. Okay, So I'm saying that because today, the, the Zionist-Orientalist narrative has managed to distort reality in such a way that you still hear people saying, oh, no, no, it's that the Muslims are the worst anti-Semites, okay? and, uh, and turning everything upside down when history is telling us something different. OK? Uh, so uh, the... End of the 15th century, you have uh, what they did with those who were forced to conversion was to use what is called the encomienda. The encomienda is a system of forced labor where the encomendero will uh, surveil their exploitation of labor but will survey also their conversion. They wanted to make sure they were not faking conversion. So the encomienda. It's a structure, they brought Christians from the north in every place they conquered land in Al-Andalus. They clean up, they did ethnic cleansing, what we call today ethnic cleansing. They, they, they wipe out the land, take over the land, take over their houses, take over their, their commerce, everything, all the institutions, they take it over, okay, and take the Muslim and Jews out, either by killing them or by those who who who, who stayed there were the ones who were accepting conversion by force. Okay? So either this is the notion of unity without heterogeneity and without unity. I mean without diversity, you see? It's unity without diversity. You impose a notion of unity equivalent to homogeneity. Anything different, you force conversion on them or you kill them. That's called ethnic cleansing in today's language. Okay? You're just wiping it out the land from anything that is different from you. okay? Now, you have a, a, this wipe out of the territory. What happened was that then uh, the encomendero the will be in charge. It's a Christian coming from the north, taking over the land, taking over properties that was brought as you know, colonizer, and then put by force these people to work and survey their labor, as well as their conversion. Today, we have a language for that. It's called settler colonialism. And you've seen that from Al-Andalus all the way to Palestine today. So this is a form of colonization that is tied to genocide because the indigenous people of the land are disposable. That is, when, they, when the colonizers arrive, they are after the land, you see, after the resources, and they wipe out the territory. They practice ethnic cleansing. So settler colonialism, is so a form of colonialism, is very highly associated with genocide. And you could see this with Aboriginal people in Australia. You could see this in South Africa. You could see this in North America. You could see this in South America. You could see this all over, till Palestine today. You know, which is a form of settler colonialism okay, that uh, begins there in the conquest of Al-Andalus. And mentioning this, that's why I'm saying we need to look carefully at the history of Al-Andalus, because it has world historical significance. Because a lot of the methods of colonization they rehearsed there were later extrapolated to the rest of the world. That's why I'm saying we need to look at this not with no- nostalgia, but look at it seriously, to learn about how is it, where are the, how is it that they have deployed this colonial method and where it's coming from and what is the history. The other thing they were doing was attempting to produce a situation where the state, the monarchical Christian Castilian state, will have in their territory one identity corresponding to one single population. The, what is that? The fiction? This is the the fictions of what later is going to be called the nation state, okay? I'm saying a fiction because that doesn't exist anywhere, but we still live under that fiction, the fiction of the nation state. One state, one identity, one population. That doesn't exist anywhere. You know, it's a fiction, it's a Eurocentric fiction that has created more problems than solutions, because wherever you go with that model of political authority, my God, it's just you know, trouble, okay? Because immediately you get into the trouble of, okay, who is part of the nation, who is not part of the nation, etc. What do you do with all who don't fit the, ident- the identity of the state? And then you go on and on into a process of uh, extermination or subordination or you know, exclusion or inferiorization. All kinds of problems out of this model. That began in the conquest of Al-Andalus too. Because the idea was to homogenize the population so that they have... One state, one identity, one population. Okay? And so those who stay have to be converted by force. They ca- they cannot be coexistent of Jews and Muslims there. Okay? They have to convert them by force. Okay? To create the notion of unity without difference or unity with homogeneity. Okay? That I was calling for before coming back, going back to Constantine and to this dualistic uh, a mentality that I've been describing back to the 4th se- century. But uh, the other thing we saw, and this is very important for our conversation, is that they everywhere they go, they burn the libraries. The libraries of Al-Andalus were burned. So think about the following. The largest library in, in Yurabedang was the, the Library of Córdoba with half a million books Look at the difference with knowledge between the two civilizations. In Christiandom, the largest library did not have 1,000 books at the time. Okay. Uh, in Granada, there, were a, there was a library of 250,000 books in Granada, which was also burned. So this is why I'm tying the concept of genocide, ethnic cleansing, forced conversion, killing people who do not fit the definition of who is Christian, etc., who resist that and genocide and epistemicide, destruction of their knowledge structure by burning the libraries. Okay, why I'm going through this description, in a detailed description of the methods of conquest of Al-Andalus, because of the world historical significance of these methods. I'm going to show you now what happened with these methods in the conquest of the Americas, because what happened was that in the late 15th century, Columbus, Christopher Columbus, goes and meets with Elizabeth the Queen and Ferdinand the Catholic, you know, the king and the queen of this Christian monarchy from Castilla, okay? The Castilian monarchy. And in the first meeting, that was like 1890, uh, I'm sorry, 1490, uh, the Columbus arrives and comes with the enterprise of the Indies with that plan. It's called the Enterprise of the Indies. And the plan was, through the Atlantic, you get to India. Okay? That was the idea. Now, the problem was that, and we have to say this, Columbus had maps. He had maps of the world. Okay? Because already there were Muslims, there were Chinese, there were maps running around that were already produced world maps. Okay? before Columbus arrived in America, because the Americas were not isolated civilization the way Eurocentric history has always portrayed. The Americas were very highly developed civilizations, Incas, Mayas, et cetera, that were in contact with the rest of the world. Everybody else around the world knew about the Americas, the Vikings, Africans, Muslims, Chinese. They have trade with the Americas. Okay way before the Columbus arrived. But the arrogance of the Europeans to say, oh, instead of saying, you know what? We didn't know about it. We were ignorant. We finally catch up with the reality of this territory. No, they will say, we discovered it. And then attribute this to their own, you know, nobody knew about it. We discovered it. No, you came very late into the game. There were already maps. They were already, you know, and uh, all these people, all around the world knew about these other civilizations. They, they have trade, they have commerce, they have communication, they have all kinds of things already happening. And crossing the Atlantic and the Pacific Okay, that uh, knew about this and they were already. But Europeans, because of their obscurantism and isolation from the world, were the only ones who didn't know about it. And so when they finally got there, then they claimed that they discovered it. Okay? Instead of saying, you know what, finally, we found out what everybody knew, okay? But that's arrogance. That's imperialist arrogance, okay? And so, uh, so Columbus came with these maps that were Chinese Muslim maps. Columbus, in his, apart from being a navigator, he traded maps, and so all these maps were running around in Europe. He was Genovese in Italy through the missions of the church from China were bringing these maps. And also, in Andalusia, there were already these maps because there were also navigators from Andalusian Islamic civilization that have already gone to the Americas and put the maps there of Africa and, and South America. Okay? So this idea that Columbus was this hero that risk, risked his life because at the time, everybody thought that the, the world was flat and that he was risking his life because he would go to a corner and maybe go down like this Remember that, that we heard that in in school, no? In elementary school. This is just Eurocentric fairy tales, okay? Everybody knew the the world was round, and Columbus knew it, and he has maps. I mean, this is all fairy tales, okay? And so uh, they would just want to make or represent Columbus as some kind of hero, when in fact, he was a colonizer who did atrocities in America, we got there. So, anyway, the point is that uh, that's why the word. Colonization, Cristóbal Colón. We say in English Columbus, but his real name in Spanish Cristóbal Colón. So colon, colonization, that's where the word is coming from. And so because of the, no European could read those maps at the time. So because of his historical mistake, he called that India. He thought that was India. He couldn't read that, those maps. He thought, oh, I'm, I'm getting to India. Okay? In fact, he was arriving to a new territory, and he died thinking he was in India. And because of Columbus' historical mistake, is that we call indigenous people in America Indians. Still, that's where the word is coming from, because he thought he was in India. So he named them Indians, even though nobody there called themselves Indian. Okay? This is a colonial concept. There, all the indigenous people have different names, different identities. Well, Indian, nobody. Okay? That was a complete invention from Columbus that stayed with us until today, and we still call them Indians. Okay? Uh, so, uh, make a long story short, Elizabeth tells him, listen, this is a great plan, we're going to implement it, but first we need to wait for the fall of Granada. So we can unify the crown in one territory, one population, one identity, one state. Once we do that, Then we pass to the plan B, going over there, no problem. Uh, Remember that the competition between empires in Europe was who got to the east to get the the wealth from there to trade them here in Europe. Europe basically produced nothing at the time. the, The world production was in the east. So the whole competition between European empire, who got you know who got the access to the trace to the east and the transportation routes the portuguese have gone through to the corner of africa the venetians have gone through, through the mediterranean with the caravans coming by land from china mongolia etc and the ottomans were there already blocking the possibility for europeans to cross that way you know by the bosphorus or things like that. So. The only way that the Spaniards have in relation to the Portuguese or the Venetians or the Ottomans was going this way, through the Atlantic. Okay? And uh, they bought the idea, they accepted the idea, and they thought they were going to India. You know? That's why they accepted the plan. Now, once Granada fell, January 2nd, 1492, that's the day of the fall of Granada, okay? and Columbus was in Santa Fe a few kilometers away from Granada, where the Christian army was there. You know, he was waiting for the fall of Granada because he he followed the promise of uh, Queen Elizabeth. So, seven, uh, nine days later, January 11, 1492, Columbus comes to Granada and comes to the palace of Alhambra that now is in the hands of the king and the queen of the Christian monarchy, you know, and in one of the rooms there, he met with the queen, and the queen gave him the royal authority and the resources, the, the goal, you know, to finance the expedition to the, what we call today the Americas. They were thinking they were going to India. That's why the term was in this and all of that, okay? Uh, so, make a long story short, that's January 11, 1492, October 12, 1492 arrived Columbus to the Americas. Ten months later. Okay, and in he puts in the diary, like he step out of the boat, step out of the boat for two hours, one hour. Nobody knows exactly. But he came back to the boat and put in his diary, these are people without religion. Pueblos sin secta in Spanish. People without religion. I'm saying he's the first Western anthropologist. Western anthropologists, British, French, American, they go to third world countries, study a tribe for two weeks, and then re- write a book as the experts of the tribe, been two weeks there. I mean, this guy step out one hour, and then he already is writing. He's the first ethnographer, Western ethnographer. He's already writing these people have no religion. Okay. Now, when you say, People with a religion in the 21st century, you might you might think that the guy is saying, "Oh, they are atheists," but in the late <laughs> 15th century, that it has a complete different connotation than today. Will, when he said there are people with a religion, in the Christian imaginary of the time, human beings have religion. You might have the wrong one. I might kill you for that. We might fight each other. I want to imp- I will impose mine on you. You know, and we might fight for that. But you're still a human being, because I'm still thinking of you as a potential member of my religious community, you see? And, but what happened when you say people without religion? Is something happening? In the conquest of Al-Andalus, they say, in the name of the purity of blood, we're conquering Al-Andalus. But the notion of purity of blood there meant that they were searching the genealogy of the families to know who is purely Christian from people who might have a, a, a grandfather who is Muslim or grandmother who is Jew, and people who have a genealogy that is not pure, they will surveil them to make sure if they have converted or not, they're faking conversion. Okay? So with the, my excuses to Foucault, biology, biopolitics began in the 15th century, not in France in the 19th century. Okay? Because Foucault was so French. He was not Eurocentric, he was French-centric. If you have been Eurocentric, at least he would know, a little European historian, know what happened in Spain in the 15th century. But he's tied to the French-centric view and thinking that biopolitics and this surveillance of the state over the population is something that happened in the 19th century and not, and not before. And in fact, this you could see very clearly in the, 16th, in the 15th, 16th century in Spain. And so they were surveilling the family. So this notion of period of blood was not the way we think about it today. Period of blood was not yet fully racist notion because it was about the genealogy of your family. You are purely Christian, they will not you You have some mixture with Muslim or Jews, then they will survey you to make sure you are not faking conversion. This is what, what was going on. So when, when Columbus put there, these are people without religion, the connotation was the following. If you don't have religion, if you don't have religion, you don't have God, and if you don't have God, you don't have a soul, and if you don't have a soul, then you must be an animal in the fauna, an animal in nature. You cannot be human. Okay. You don't have religion. You have God. You don't have God. You don't have a soul. And if you don't have a soul, you're like a cow, like you know, a horse or like an animal in nature. And therefore, it's not a sin in the eyes of God if I enslave you and put you by force to work in the labor force, okay? Because you are just like another animal in nature. You're not a human being. This is the moment in history that for the first time you have the inferiorization of human beings below the line of the human, push them below the line of the human, and you have an economic, political system constructed on the basis of the dehumanization of a whole population.
1: It's
0: the first moment in human history where you have that. It's very important. We need to historicize these things, (laughs) because part of the Eurocentric assumption is to make us believe that the common sense of today that the forms of domination today are normal and universal since Adam and Eve. And the moment you think that, then this is human nature. And if it's human nature, there's nothing you can do about it, except make sure you're on top and the rest below you. That's the law of the jungle. Okay? That's the law of the jungle. So that's part of the common sense <coughs> of Eurocentric. May you believe that these are transhistorical structures and, and, and concepts on which you cannot do anything about it. Okay? When in fact, this is why I am historicizing these questions to, to, to bring when these things began to happen. It's not that in the past there was no conflicts, or that there was no wars, or there no atrocities. I'm not saying that. There were, in the past, all kind of things happened, good and bad things. But the forms of constructing otherness was very different from the way this expansion, colonial expansion, constructed otherness that was based fundamentally on pushing large population, large number of population, below the line of the human. And the first marker of racism was not color. It was a theological racism built upon the notion of people with soul and people without a soul. That's the first moment. For the next 60 years, you're going to have a debate in the conquest of the Americas about that, about who are these people that we found over there. And there were already voices inside the Christian church that were putting in question the idea that these were like animals, people without soul, and so on. That they were already saying, what if these people have a soul? What if they are humans? Then we are all going to hell. And there were, that debate was there in the Christian church. And there were theologians already raising their voice against the atrocities of the conquest of the Americas against the indigenous people, and saying, hey, wait a minute. Let's discuss this carefully. We might all go to hell, OK? And that debate began. But the Spanish Empire had already made a decision. And they enslaved massively indigenous people in the America. Okay? They enslaved them immediately. Okay? so. The next 60 years, you have this debate, OK? By 1552, you have a, a debate that was organized <coughs> by the king, where he was not sure if the methods of the conquest were valid from a Christian point of view, or if they were a scene in the eyes of God. So he wanted to make sure that they were doing the right thing. And so he put a trial. And at that time, the authority of knowledge is in the hands of the church, okay? The authority of knowledge. And so, he put a, trial, a tribunal that was already a theological tribunal. And that theological tribunal was between Bartolomé de las Casas, Bartolomé de las Casas, and Ginés Sepúlveda. These were the two theologians that were debating this. To make a long story short, Sepúlveda lining up, with the line that the methods we're using in the Americas is justified in the eyes of God, because these are animals, people without soul. Las Casas said, these people are half a soul, but they are, a, in a sense, they are a barbarians in a, in a childish stage okay, that need to be Christianized. Okay? So people without soul, vis-a-vis, Barbarians that need to be Christianized. Look at the two lines. These two discourses are, are this, this trial has world historical significance. Because the thing is that this trial, in this trial you have the two positions that the West have, is going to use as racist argument against the rest for the next 450 years. On the one hand, the line of Sepúlveda, people without soul. In the 19th century, when the authority of knowledge went away from the theology, Christian theology, and went into the pseudo-science of the 19th century, especially natural science and biology, people without soul turned into people without the human DNA. That's the secularization of the theological argument of the 16th century. Now, in this pseudo-biology, pseudo-scientific argument of the 19th century, to say, OK, from people without soul to people without the human DNA. Okay? And then the line of Las Casas is going to be also secularized in the 19th century with the social science and especially anthropology. And so from barbarians to be Christianized, in the 19th century, you have the discourse of primitive to be civilized. This is a secularization of the theological argument of Las Casas in that trial of the 16th century. Now you have the two discourses that today we call biological racist discourses and culturalist racist discourses. These are the two. So you could see, you could trace down the genealogy of this kind of discourses for the past 500 years, okay? From the the trial in Spain, 1552, all the way till today. And you could see how these two lines of arguments have been there in... Imperialist colonial projects all over the world till today, till today. Okay, so you could see also, uh, so in that trial, in the long run, Sepúlveda won the trial. In the short run, Las Casas won the trial. So they decided that indigenous people in Americas were barbarians to be Christianized. So what did they do? They took away all the indigenous people from slavery. You might think they're now, now going to emancipate them. No. What did they do? They brought the encomienda into the Americas. That is, they put them in a form of forced labor, Okay, and because it's barbarians to be Christianized, where well they're going, the is going to do this. So it's a method of conquest of Alanda now in the Americas. They're going to now serve. <clears throat> Surveiled the exploitation of their labor to so coerce labor and surveyed their conversion. Okay? With Christian colonizers coming in, taking over the land and put them to work by force and surveil if they're converting or not, or they're faking conversion. The same methods of the conquest of Al-Andalus, now you see them extrapolated to the Americas. Okay? Now who's going to do slave labor? This is when you have the beginnings of the European captive trade. This is not a slave trade. This is is the language of the masters. If you say the slave trade, you're assuming that Africans are already slave and the Europeans just went there to the shores of Africa and they were slave there saying, I am a slave, take me to the Americas in a cruise. Okay, take me to the Caribbean in a cruise. In fact, what happened is that they organized a mass industry of kidnapping people in Africa. That's what I'm saying, the captive trade. Put it in boats by force and then enslaved in the Americas. And they are going to occupy now the position of slavery in the Americas that they took away from the indigenous people. Okay? And so this is the moment of the beginnings of the captive trade. Because it's going to be a mass industry of kidnapping people, organized by the Europeans with local African collaborators, okay, that are going to participate of this, and begin the kin- mass kidnapping of people and transferring by force to Americas to be enslaved over there, okay, and so the other war historical significance, So you have look at the war historical significance of the trial. On the one hand, the, the racist discourses that you're going to see for the next 450, 500 years, and on the other hand, you have the, uh, the, now the transferring mass transferring of Africans to the Americas to be enslaved there.? Okay? So uh, so you have here uh, the transferring of an institution, the conquest of Andalusia, into the Americas, the encomienda. But what else they transferred? They transferred the epistemic So they also were burning the libraries of indigenous people in America. Libraries there were codices and kippus. <coughs> they were not the notion of the book we have here. Okay? It was for them, the books were uh, written in, in a form of uh, uh, textiles and in form of paper okay, that they used from raw materials there. And they, they wrote in hieroglyphics, A lot of their knowledge was archived this way and they were basically burned, like they did in Andalusia. So, look at how the methods used in the conquest of uh, Andalusia are now transferred to the Americas. Okay? Uh, So, so so far we're looking at from Andalusia methods of conquest now in the Americas transferring them. Now, let's look the other way. This discussion about people without a soul. that began with the conquest of the Americas is going now to come back to Europe and the conquest of Andalusia. Now, in the 16th century, you had two, three generations of converted Muslims that were called the Moriscos, the Moors, okay, in the south of Spain, that were now Christians. They were born Christian, they were baptized Christian, they were not anymore, most of them, the majority of them were not Muslims, even though there were some communities of, of these Moriscos that were still. Practicing Islam in secret, okay? But uh, the the majority of them were already uh, converted. The memory, because part of burning libraries, you know, is precisely today we have a language. It's you delete the program and you upload a new program. If you burn the library and you force conversion after two, three generations, there's no more memory of the knowledge and the history. And so you reprogram the head of people. That's called decolonizing the mind. So you bring a new narrative from the point <laughs> of view of the colonizers. And the, colo- and the colonized people do not have alternative narratives because they have been forced conversion, so there's no oral transmission okay, of that, those knowledge, and they burn the libraries. Okay? So there's no source from where you can go to find an alternative narrative. This is part of the method of colonization. You delete the program, and you upload a new program that is going to narrate a completely different history. okay? So part of the structure of knowledge is related to that question. So uh, now we're going to see how the conquest of America affect the conquest of Al-Andalus. Because now this concept that emerged in the continental of America people without soul is going to travel back to the conquest of Al-Andalus. And now they're going to say that the Morisco question in, in, in south of Spain is, a more profound problem. Because Moriscos are soulless people. Now they bring the concept of people without soul back into Andalusia, (coughs) and now they're going to reclassify the Christian Moriscos as people without soul. So they're going to say now, the problem with the Moriscos is not that their ancestors were praying to the inferior god or the inferior theology or the inferior religion is more profound, is that even though they're Christian now, there is a more fundamental question, and that's about their humanity, is that they are not human. They are soulless. They're like animals. So look at how (coughs) this racist question that emerged in the context of the Americas comes back to Andalusia and redefines the populations conquered in the conquest of Andalus as people without soul too. And now they're going to enslave men, enslave them in mass numbers, okay, until finally they expel them in 1609. Okay? And now you're going to hear a lot of discourses in Spain assimilating or associating moriscos with uh, animals. Okay? With animals. And this is very important because this is the moment in history when medieval Islamophobia and medieval judeophobia turned into racism. I'm saying that because many times when we discuss this question, (coughs) we think of Islamophobia as something, oh, it's already there since the Crusades. Yes, but medieval Islamophobia was a form of religious discrimination that you cannot classify in the same way as Islamophobia now in the 16th century. Because now, with the question of not having a soul, there is a redefinition of this old narrative, Islamophobic narrative of the Crusades and the Middle Ages, where it's a form of religious discrimination. You have the wrong God, the inferior God, the inferior theology. But now it's a different question. Now it's not about your religion. It's about your humanness. It's about your humanity. It's about, oh, you don't have a soul. So you are an inferior being. You're like animals. So now the theological question is gone. Now it's a complete new question. That is a modern question. It's a rupture with the medieval uh, uh, conception. And here you have Judeophobia and Islamophobia turning into modern racism. Okay? Because now it's not a theological question, it's about the humanity of the people who happen to come from that background. You see? And the question. The, the debate at the time was not so much scientific, but theological. Later on, it turned into pseudoscience with this thing about not having the DNA, the human DNA. Okay? So here you see how the conquest of Andalusia, the conquest of the Americas. Okay? And there is a, 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 in this conquest, you have the conquest against Jews and Muslims in the conquest of Andalusia, the conquest against indigenous people <coughs> and Africans, because they also conquered Africa, as part of the conquest of Americas in the 16th century. And then you have another conquest, and that is the conquest of women in Europe that were burned alive in vast numbers, accused of being witches. All of this is happening at the same time. and this is the formation of European modernity, of Western modernity. Here you have the two structures that are going to be fundamental and constitutive. Western modernity, racism and sexism. These women were sages in communities in Europe, peasant communities, rural communities, who had a lot of knowledge about you know, <coughs> astronomy, about medicine, about plants, <coughs> about ethics, about, and they were indigenous to this territory, there were indigenous people all over the place in the world, and they were in the same way in, in this thing we call Europe, there were also indigenous people, and what they did was a process of extermination of these women by burning them alive. In their cases, these women have a lot of power and knowledge in their communities, and this bourgeois aristocracy that emerged with expansion to the Americas that now creates a world capitalist market. Okay, and now you have an, a, an aristocracy that turned into capitalists, into global capitalists. They went after these woman Okay, because they were putting in question the patriarchal Christendom notions okay, of relation between males and women. And they were very powerful, they had a lot of knowledge. That knowledge was transmitted orally, generation from generation. Okay. And uh, uh, so they, they were burned alive. In their cases, there were no books. There were no books, no codices or quipus, like in the Americas, that they cl- they burned those things to destroy the knowledge. In their cases, the books were themselves, their bodies. And so they burned them. okay? Because they were the ones who carried the knowledge. There was no book there you know, like you have in Andalus or in the indigenous civilization of the Americas. So they burned them alive. So you have now, um, I have described so far, four genocide okay? African people that you know were killed in the millions in the process of capturing them in Africa, in the process of transportation to America, in the process of enslavement enslavement in the Americas. Okay? In that process, you have millions of them killed. But also, they were forbidden from practicing their spirituality, their knowledge, etc. Okay, So all of that was happening with African people in this process. Then indigenous people were in the process of conquest of the Americas. They were, uh, you know, uh, basically subalternized, inferiorized, etc. And their knowledge archives were burned. The same happened in Andalus against Jews and Muslims. Okay? And then you have the uh, burning alive of women in mass numbers in Europe. So here you have four genocide epistemicides in the long 16th century okay, that are constitutive of the modern world. Because the modern world is going to be formed <coughs> on the basis of these sexist and racist uh, uh, structures of power. And it's going, this is going to be constitutive of modern philosophy and modern sciences. Because then, in the 17th century, when Descartes, the first modern philosopher, says, I think, therefore, I exist. Okay. This, I think, <clears throat> is the moment when the Europeans were trying to secularize from the authority of the church, of Christendom, to be able to produce science. Okay. It's that moment. And here comes the car. I I say, takes the authority of knowledge away from the Christendom God into this I, and says oh, takes all the attributes of the Christian God and extrapolates them to this I. And he's going to say, this eye is able to produce a knowledge beyond time and space, universal in the sense of beyond any particularity, and not situated anywhere in the world. It's like it's a God-eye view, he would say. This eye is able to produce a God-eye view, because he will claim that it's like God floating in a cloud undetermined by anything on Earth. This eye is able to produce the same kind of knowledge from a God-eye view, okay? like God floating from a cloud. That is objective, objectivity, and neutrality. Universal in the sense of beyond any particularity, undetermined by any particularity. Okay? This Cartesian mythology is still the criteria we use in westernized universities to claim what is scientific knowledge and what is not scientific knowledge. Keep that in mind. This is very problematic, as I'm going to explain in a minute. Okay? So now. To be able to argue a God I view, Descartes needs two arguments. Ontological dualism, he needs to claim that the mind is a different substance from the body, and that the mind is like ethereal, in the sense that it flows like God from clouds and from, is undetermined by the body. Okay? So he needs that argument to make the God I view argument. What if human beings produce knowledge our minds is in bodies okay that we don't our minds not floating elsewhere then you cannot claim you have a god eye then you have to accept the condition that human beings are limited we are conditioned by our bodies and our situation where our body is located okay we have condition we cannot produce a knowledge god like so this is an idolatric this i think is idolatric is now someone who thinks of himself a god on earth, okay? And we're going to come back to this notion. The other argument he needs is so- methodological solipsism. He needs the methodological solipsism to be able to claim this, the God-I view. What is methodological solipsism? That the subject, this I, can arrive to certitude certainty knowledge through an internal monologue, asking questions, answering the question in an internal monologue until you arrive to certitude in knowledge. Okay? What if human beings produce knowledge in relations with other human beings and not in an internal monologue but in a dialogical relation with other humans? Then you don't have a good idea, because that means that you produce knowledge in particular social and historical relations and conditions and contexts. <laughs> And therefore, you cannot claim a god right view in your knowledge. You see the point? If you're able to produce a knowledge with ontological duality, he needs this argument, ontological duality, the mind floating elsewhere, no condition by a body, and the subject arriving to certain knowledge through an internal monologue, he needs that to be able to, to claim the god right view. If he doesn't make that argument, the god right view argument falls apart because then you have to understand and recognize the limits of being a human being. That's why I'm calling this an idolatric eye. Now, suddenly, you have someone in the mid 17th century that is the founder of a new philosophy, that is Western-made philosophy, claiming to be producing a knowledge that is a god eye view, okay? It's an idolatric move here, and the question that Enrique Dussel, philosopher of liberation, in Latin America, races, is, who is this guy? Where is this arrogance coming from to claim that now that he's godlike and that he's founding a new philosophy based on the idea that this eye can produce a god-eye view? What are the conditions of possibility, economic, political, military, cultural, for someone in the mid-17th century to say, I am godlike. My knowledge is godlike. Who is this guy? And so he has uh, raised this question. And the answer he gives is that the conditional possibility of the idolatric I think is 150 years of I conquer, therefore I am. That is, it's the I conquer that is below the idolatric I think. That is, the I conquer is the conditional possibility for now Western man putting himself at the center of the world, okay, and getting rid of the Christian God and say, I am now God on earth. and I am now uh, God like on earth, okay, and I have the same authority and <coughs> knowledge because my knowledge is God like, it's is the God I view like. So we don't need anymore that God, we are now God on earth, okay. That move. It's very important, and I'm going to supplement the argument with the following. The I conquer doesn't have to necessarily end in the idolatry I think. You have many conquests in world history, in the past, where it didn't end in this idolatry I think, okay? The idolatry I think, the condition of possibility, there's a mediation here between the I think, between the I conquer, therefore I am, and the idolatric I think, therefore I am. And that mediation is I exterminate, therefore I exist. I exterminate, therefore I exist. It's the genocide epistemicides what creates the condition of possibility and the mediation between the I conquer and the idolatric I think. Why I'm saying that? Because when the car was saying I think, therefore I am, he was saying it from Amsterdam, even though he was French. At the moment, when Amsterdam became the new center of that war economy (coughs) that emerged with the European colonial expansion in 1492. After the 30-year war, 30-year war, the Dutch displayed the the Iberian Peninsula from the center, and now the new center is Amsterdam. He's producing his knowledge from there, okay? And when he said, I think, therefore I exist, and my knowledge, the knowledge of this eye is God-like, it's a, it's a god eye view. At the moment, after, a, after the conquest of Andalus, that eye couldn't be a Muslim. After the conquest genocide epistemic against Muslim Jews, that eye could not be a Muslim or a Jew. After the conquest of genocide epistemic of the Americas, that eye could not be an indigenous person. After the conquest of Africa and their mass enslavement into the Americas, that I could not be African. After the burning alive a woman in the 16th century, that I could not be a woman, not even a European woman of the five countries. I'm getting now into, you know, a landing now, into when this happened, okay, and why it happened. And the thing is that I exterminate, that is, the destruction, the epistemic and the genocide is what creates, then, the condition possibility of saying, OK, this eye can only be a Western man. Because in the common sense of the time, after those genocide side, no, it didn't occur to anybody in Europe at the time to think that the eye of the car could be a woman, or could be an African, or could be an indigenous person, or could be a Muslim, or a Jew, because that Philosophy is already constituted by the common sense created by these poor genocide epistemicites. And that's the foundation of Western philosophy. It's founded on genocide epistemicite. Then, a hundred years later, comes Kant and says, because we read these authors in, with a lot of generosity, we read, I think, oh, that's me. No. For Descartes, is almost nobody in this room. We read them with generosity. Oh, the transcendental subject of Kant, that's me. No, for Kant, you're not the transcendental subject, most people in this room. Because when you read the anthropological writings of Kant 100 years after Descartes, okay, he's going to say that rationality is in the white man north of the Pyrenees Mountains. What are the Pyrenees Mountains? The mountains that divide <coughs> the Iberian Peninsula from the south of France. So he's going to say, rationality is north of the Pyrenees. In a white man he's going to now use color. Because color racism is going to come with a force. And theological racism is going to be displaced with the kidnapping of Africans in the Ameri- in, 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 you know, and taking them to enslave the Americas. And now, in the 18th century, when Kant is writing, color racism is now a major thing. And Kant is going to say in his anthropological writings, rationality is north of the Peninsula, in the white man, north of the Peninsula mountain. Rationality, yellow man, African man, black man, he would say, and red man <coughs> have no, are irrational beings. And the Iberian Peninsula contaminated with. African, black, indigenous, uh, Islamic, all kinds of things, and therefore are irrational beings. So it's going to now subalternize the Iberian Peninsula out of the epistemic privilege of the West. It's going to now inferiorize, even though the Iberian Peninsula began the colonial expansion to Americas and all these racist discourses, now it's going <laughs> to come back to harm them when they're displaced after the 30-year war by... Uh, by the Dutch, later, later the British, later USA, etc. But when they're displaced, immediately south of Europe become a different uh, space that are going to be subalternate and inferiorized racially by the Europeans of the North. You could see that today in the rhetoric about the <coughs> 2008 financial crisis. They say, no, the problem with financial crisis are the peaks. Have you heard that in the news? Pigs, Portugal? Ireland, Greece, and Spain, the peaks. Have you heard that? This is the term used in the press in northern Europe to describe the crisis. And they will say, the, the reason of the crisis is not the plundering of financial capital over the resources of the world, including South Europe, etc. cetera. It's that southern Europeans are lazy and corrupt. That's the argument that you're going to see in the front pages Of British newspapers, German newspapers, etc., since 2008. These are the same arguments they've been using against Africans, Latin Americans, and Asians for centuries. Okay? For centuries. So the point I'm trying to make is look, here comes Cannes, and now Cannes is, you know, in a very clear, (coughs) color racist way, is is saying who has access to Hachan, white man north of the Piris Mountains. Okay? Of course, he doesn't talk about women, because women are out of the question. He's talking about men, but women are not in the, in the conversation. Okay? And so the first scientific secularist Westernist university is founded in Berlin in the 18th century with the Humboldtian-Kantian epistemology. So from the beginning, this Western university that began in Berlin and later, became the structure that had been described at the Western University as a global structure of power that creates the the elites that are going to be the westernized elites that are going to do the job for the West over the rest. Okay, now this is going to be founded from the beginning on epistemic racism, sexism. Because for Kant and Humboldt, the authority of knowledge of course cannot be an African cannot be indigenous, cannot be Muslim, cannot be Jew, cannot be, a, cannot be a woman. Okay, it's only white men north of the Pyrenees Mountains. Okay, this is where the foundation of the Westerners' university. And to finish, why is it that in the twenty-first century? I mean, I, I hope you have seen the connection so far, you know, between how the I conquer. Translate into the idolatric, I think, through the I exterminate, therefore I exist. The genocide epistemicides becoming the mediation between the I conquer and the idolatric, I think. And how these genocide epistemicides of the 16th century are constitutive of the structures of knowledge of the modern world. I hope that argument has been put forward and understood, and we can now debate it or discuss it. okay? And to finish, the question is why in the 21st century? We're still carrying on with this kind of, uh, you know, racist, sexist epistemologies, with this kind of provincial knowledge disguised as universal, etc. Why is it that we're still there? And the answer to that is how this epistemic structure are tied with global structures of power. The coloniality of knowledge is tied to the coloniality of power. That's why they're still there. And i give you an example to finish. In the 16th century, we went from Christianize or I'd kill you, okay? My knowledge is superior to you. You are inferior to me. So I know not only what is reality, I know not only what is truth, but I know what is best for you because my knowledge is superior to you, okay? So this arrogance and epistemic racism is at the center of global structures of power. Because then if I know what is best for you, it doesn't matter what you say is good for you. My knowledge is superior to you, so whatever you say is going to be inferior to me. So I know what is best for you. So if I have to kill you to save your soul from your barbarianism, I'll kill you. Millions of people killed in the 16th century in the name of Christianism, I'll kill you. 19th century civilize, or I'll kill you. You are an obstacle to progress. You are primitive. Now it's not barbarian. Now it's the primitive. You are primitive. I know what's best for you. You should stop praying this way. You should should pray this other way. You should stop dressing that way. You should stop believing this superstitious thing. You should become scientific. I try to persuade you through peaceful method. You don't understand it through peaceful method. Well, I will have to use force because I need to save progress and civilization. and You're an obstacle to progress and civilization. Millions of indigenous people killed in the 19th century in the name of civilized or I killed you. Civilized or I killed you. They went after indigenous people all over the world and killed millions. 20th century, developed or I killed you. You are underdeveloped. You don't know what development is. You're an obstacle to development. Here is the recipe to develop. You bring foreign transnational corporations, you let the corporation to take over your resources, you offer them cheap labor, you don't, offer, you don't tax their, their income, you know, and sooner or later you be like the West. You, your economy is going to flourish like the West. Okay? This is the recipe. <coughs> you, don't, you, you don't agree, I try to convince you. You don't agree by peaceful means, then we have to use force. In the name of progress and development. And here comes the CIA organized coup d'etat all over the world, okay? in the name of develop or I kill you. And now you have developmentalist dictatorships all over, all over the world. Okay? In the name of develop, I know what is best for you. It doesn't matter what you say is best for you. My knowledge is superior to you. I, I will tell you what is good for you. So they treat the rest of the world like childs in condescending paternalistic way, inferiorizing their knowledge, and imposing on them by force their global colonial imperial designs. And now you have coup d'etat that killed millions of people around the world. In Indonesia, in 1965, in the first month of the coup, they killed more than a million people in one month. Not to talk about coup d'etat in Africa, in Latin America, all over the place, in Asia. They killed millions of people around the world in the name of develop or I kill you. 21st century, democratize or I kill you. You're authoritarian. Your culture is authoritarian. Even though those dictatorships were put there during the period of develop or I kill you by intelligence agencies of the West, but now they say, no, no. You have an authoritarian culture. We're coming to teach you democracy now. And here they come with their tanks, their airplanes, okay, their, 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 their military technology to teach you democracy. Millions of people killed in the name of democrat, democratize or I killed you in the last 15 years. Okay? So this is, look at how these structures of knowledge That give privilege to white-manified countries is entangled with global colonial imperial designs in the world. That's why we still carry on with this tradition, you know, and that's why the colony, the powers that be, keep it going and make it global. The Western university is a mechanism of domination, power of the world system we live and of Western civilization today to keep the system going, to produce the westernized elites in the third world that are going to be the collaborators of the domination of the West over the rest, of the exploitation of the West over the rest. You have this ongoing. And these are the structures of global imperial design entangled with the structures of knowledge. And that's why we are where we are. But anyway, thank you very much.
2: As always, Ramon, a great pleasure to listen to you. Thank you. I'm going to take a few questions at a time. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, I have an audio recording going on. If you are unhappy to be recorded, just say when you ask your question. I'll turn it. I'll turn it off. So, questions, please. Okay. So here, and then here. Yep. <coughs>
3: the university structure is so, uh, built on this uh, uh, Western male five countries and excludes most of the world population, and half of the world population uh, women. How can you have an institution of learning which isn't based on that structure?
0: We need to, roads must fall. Yeah, yeah. That's the, that's the so, slogan of South African yeah. students. Roads must fall. What they're calling for is to decolonize the universities, Westernized university, you know, in the sense of bringing epistemic diversity. There are two, two things that are fundamental to decolonize the Westernized university. That's a long discussion, but I will tell you very fast two things. First, the structures of knowledge, the ways divided in disciplines like that, fragmented one from the other. This structure of knowledge emerged in the 19th century when European imperial powers needed knowledge production for their enterprises. So they produced so political science was the discipline that would give them the public policy. Okay? Economic is the discipline that will give you the economic policy. Anthropology is the discipline that will give you knowledge about the colonized people, the primitive people. Okay, Ge- Geography is the knowledge that will give you the geopolitical, military notions about how to go about imperial power. I mean, you you go discipline by discipline, you will see that they are tied to imperial power colonial projects of European states in the 19th century. But today, we still carry on with that. We still fragment knowledge in this way. And then what happened? Then we are producing disciplinary decadence, in the sense that we are producing knowledge based on the problems of disciplines and not based on the problems of the world. You see? We are producing knowledge based on disciplinary problems. And that's, that's a decadent knowledge. It's not going anywhere. Okay? That's why we go to conferences, academic conference. After two days, we come out depressed. And we, we spend the next month recovering from the two days we were in that conference. Not only because there are the big egos there, you know, crushing everybody else, but also because it's nonsense what has been discussed in those disciplinary conferences. It's all about disciplinary knowledges that are decadent because they're not dealing with the problems of the world. So I'm calling for decolonizing those structural knowledge and building new of knowledge that are based not on disciplines, but on problems that humanity is facing today. For example, let's look at the ecological crisis. Or let's look at the problem of this thing called the nation state. Okay, and <coughs> what kind of alternative form of state we can produce beyond this crazy idea of the nation-state that creates more problems than solutions? Okay, let's look at the problem of uh, there's so many problems in the world today. but let's look at the problem of imperialism. Okay, let's look at the problem <coughs> of a uh, financial crisis. Okay, so instead of Producing knowledge based on sociology, anthropology, political science, and, and fragmenting knowledge like that, where then you never make sense of what's going on because you, you have fragmented knowledge in such a way that what you produce is, it doesn't make any sense about what's going on, okay? But you produce knowledge based on problems, you see, where you can put then a holistic approach where you put together, you know, or, for example, my talk today is this, Religious studies? Is this sociology? Is this political science? Is this economics? Is this what is my talk today? How do you classify in this discipline? It's unclassifiable, because I'm not producing knowledge based on disciplines. You see, I'm producing a knowledge that is, in that <coughs> sense, transdisciplinary. So I'm, I'm tackling a, a problem, a question, etc., and then bringing all kind of knowledge into it that the Western university fragments, so it could. I mean, what, what I said today, have elements of philosophy, elements of political economy, elements of history, elements of, of religion, elements of religious studies, no? elements all kinds of issues are there, you see, that are not, uh, you know, uh, but I'm not, I'm not in the prison house of the disciplines, you see, I'm producing knowledge beyond the disciplines. Uh, and then we need to bring epistemic diversity to every problem we're dealing with. So instead of, okay, ecological crisis, and then you bring back the Western Manifi countries to answer, to define the problem and answer the questions, you bring epistemic diversity. Let's look at the critical thought, okay, produced by people, let's say, in the indigenous and Mara world in the Andean region, okay, the critical thinkers who are thinking about ecological problems of the world. Let's bring the knowledge of Muslim critical thinkers. Okay, let's bring the knowledge of uh, Bantu thinkers, Yoruba thinkers in West Africa. Let's bring knowledge, critical thinkers. I'm not saying any thinking, OK? Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying any. I'm saying the critical thought the people have thought from different epistemologies and co- cosmologies, the problem of the ecological crisis. And then you can bring the traditional European men, how they have thought about it, but as one more, not at the center of the conversation. And then we can learn something. Maybe there might be useful there. And maybe we, we can, we're not going to do to European men what European men have done to the rest of the world. You see, they can come to the conversation, but they have come to come to the conversation with humility, listening to other people, okay? And decentering themselves, not thinking they're the center of the conversation. Because if that's the case, there's no dialogue. There is a monologue. If, if European men enter that door and come in and think of themselves at the center of the conversation, that's a monologue. That's not a dialogue, you see? So no problem to bring some of the critical knowledge from that tradition, but it's just one more. It's not the center anymore. Okay? And then you bring epistemic diversity to each problem. OK, nation state, okay? how is taught this problem in different traditions of critical thinking of the world? You see? And then you bring something relevant and something more, in a sense, uh, broader Than just this provincialism that we're enslaved to, okay? Of Western men telling for us what is reality, what is truth, and what is good for you. That's over, men. It's not working. Eurocentrism is in terminal crisis. They can the eurocentrism is in terminal crisis because they cannot give solution to the problem they have created. When you have a civilization, that's the first line of a necessary discourse on colonialism. The, the teacher of Frantz Fanon, where he says, a civilization that cannot give answers to the problem they have created is a decadent civilization. And that's what happened with Eurocentric thought. They cannot give answers to the problem they have created. Look at the, pro- the, 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 the Copenhagen summit about ecological crisis. Nothing. They couldn't give answers. They didn't know what to do. Look at the COP... 21 or 20 in Paris. Nothing. It's a disaster. Okay? But look at the cumbre of Cochabamba in Bolivia, where indigenous people from all over the world got together to think about this problem. And they have a lot to say. And they produce a document like this okay? with a lot of interesting ideas about this question. Okay? So this is what I'm saying. Eurocentrism is in terms of crisis. They, cannot, they can give answers, but they have no solution. You can give answers. That doesn't mean they are the correct answers. That are the wrong answers, but they, that's why they cannot give any solution to this problem. So you need to de- transform the structures of knowledge production away from disciplines into problems that humanity faces, and bring epistemic diversity to each of the problems you're dealing with. That's my call.
3: There's a
2: question over here and then one here.
3: Um, very similar question. You asked sort of the same thing, but where do we start, then? Do we start in universities? Where does this change begin to take place so that things don't repeat themselves
0: for the next? Okay. <coughs> First of all, the, the, the problem is a political problem. I mean, you cannot try to transform this university through rational arguments with the authorities. It's not going to happen. Because there's too much at stake in the structures of knowledge they put forward. You see? It's about power. It's entangled with the colonialite, global colonial power. <coughs> okay? So this has to be transformed. Look at what the South African students are doing. Have you seen this? It's a national movement in South Africa. They closed down the university for one week last week, calling to decolonize the university. Roads must fall. That's the slogan. Okay? And calling for... Now, it has to be a political intervention. There's no other way. And now, every university in South Africa has a committee of curriculum reform towards the decolonial curriculum. Every university in South Africa, this is amazing, okay, have a, a committee dealing with decolonial curriculum reform. Okay? Now, in the USA, I come from the Department of Ethnic Studies, Berkeley University, that department did not happen because one day the whites woke up and have an alignment <laughs> and say, oh, you know what? People of color should have a space here and produce their own knowledge. No, that's, that's not how it happened. It happened with a strike in 1969, okay, where people of color went to strike at Berkeley and in San Francisco State University across the... the, the the bay, and <laughs> calling for structures of knowledge that are dealing with their own history, with their own situation, etc., from the inside the white university. And calling in question the knowledge produced by the white university about their history, about the world, about USA, all kind of thing. Okay? So that strike lasted a month and was a very bloody strike. Because the white folks, the white students, were protesting the war in Vietnam, was protesting about freedom of speech, all kind of stuff, and they were never, ever okay, mistreated, or uh, in jail, or anything like that at Berkeley, okay? It was always the local police or the campus police who deal with the issues. Here is a group of people of color doing a strike at Berkeley, calling for a space to produce knowledge, and what is the answer? Campus police? No. Berkeley police? No. San Francisco police? No. The National Guard of California was mobilized to beat them up for nine months. So it was with blood and violence that they were facing for nine months. Every day they were beat up by the National Guard. Okay? Every single day. Finally, they managed to conquer, because at the beginning they were calling for a Third World Liberation College. That was the name. With many departments. But that was never achieved in Berkeley, it was achieved in San Francisco State. Okay? In Berkeley, they negotiated the formation of the Department of Ethnic Studies with all these programs of Native American, blacks, Asians, you know, Latinos, etc. Okay? that is producing a critical knowledge vis-a-vis the white university, a decolonial critical knowledge. 30 years later, in 99, there was a need of another strike because in those 30 years, they were cutting off the lines of the professor who retired, died, or moved to another university. So the department was shrinking to the point of disappearing. And so the student went on strike again in 99 to to bring uh, faculty lines and they brought 12 to 15 faculty lines. And they created a new center called the Center for Race and Gender. That organizes now every year the Islamophobia conference in April. Okay? And organizes every year conferences against racism, against gender oppression, you name it. Okay? That was a result of the strike. That was not because one day the whites woke up with an alignment in their head. That was because it was struggle political struggle. Now I'm not saying that the Berkeley model is the model you should imitate everywhere. I'm not saying that. I'm saying look in different places what kind of strategies they're using and think about your situation here, what you you should do. But I I, I can tell you something, Uh, it doesn't matter which, which model you use, the Berkeley model or the South African student model or whatever model you use, you're going to face a political struggle. This is not going to happen by going to these racist, sexist departments, okay? And try to convince them by rational arguments, okay? That they should diversify their epistemology to understand the world better. It's as simple as that, okay? Uh, Try to convince them. Good luck, okay? (laughs) Uh, But it's, it's just, you need a political movement to do that, to achieve that, you know? And of course, we have rational arguments. I'm not denying rational arguments. And Of course, we have very strong arguments to make. I have made very strong arguments here. But that's not going to be enough. That's all I'm saying. You need the strong arguments, but you need also a political movement that will push the bottom. You see? And that's what happened with, uh, in South Africa today. They, they went on a national strike okay, and closed down, shut down all the universities. So you need to, to think about, in the context of Cambridge University or British University, what would be the best model to follow or to pursue? But don't forget that you need to organize politically to put the pressure that is needed to do this kind of transformation. Okay.
2: There's a question here, and then here, and then there. Please. Is
4: no, yeah. Oh, I just want to firstly say, Great, like great talk. Absolutely loved it. I mean, you know, I had an international relations lecture earlier, and it was always France did this, America did that. Very boring, very boring. And yours was great. I just want to firstly say I agree with uh, a lot of what you said, and I especially like the point about it kind of creates like collaborators because of the colonial like way of thinking has been exported to these countries, and obviously kind of like a petty bourgeois of like black and you know. Black leaders in these countries and other such places who, you know, in a way are given as kind of like, you know, piecemeal reformers. And the same is with mainstream political parties. Obviously, in, say, the 60s in the United States, you had radical movements like the Black Panthers and, you know, uh, black Marxists and kind of, you know, socialist movements like that. But obviously, they were, you know, crushed by the CIA and rooted out. And instead, you know, the American government, they gave kind of, you know, piecemeal reforms, okay, we'll give you the Civil Rights Movement, we'll give you the Civil Rights Act if you fight against communism, so, you know, we can never, obviously, you know, get the reforms we want, because, you know, if we ask for economic justice or internationalist justice, they say, no, that's a step too far, we'll give you this socially diverse thing, but if you ask for anything more, we won't give it to you, because, obviously, those political parties are founded on that (coughs) sustained kind of mindset you were talking about, so I'm just wondering what extent can we properly engage with political parties to get what we want because even with you know the democratic party and the labor party they still to an extent br- embrace neoliberal policies which very much keep that you know persist you know the structural racism <coughs> that yeah, you are you talking about
0: well i think that uh if you think uh, about the political parties this question i'm raising here about eurocentrism about epistemic racism sexism about the Western university applies to the Westernised left. Okay? The Western and Left reproduces the same <laughs> paradigm. Okay? And that's, that's a serious problem. You know? And so uh, the the you look at the Western left. They put there as the canonical authors again, once again the same canonical authors you will find in the Western university. Okay? So this is a there is a fundamental problem there, because the Westernized left Is part of the problem and not part of the solution. You see? And so you need, this is where there is decolonial in Europe. This, this, you know, uh, this uh, network of decolonial movements in different parts of Europe calling for the decolonization of Europe and then building a political movement that will put forward an alliance of the different people, okay, that are calling for the decolonization of Europe, especially people of color that begins the struggle. But white people are invited also as long as they do the decolonial shift, okay? As long as they do that, also there are white people uh, invited to join the struggle. This this is not about color or anything like that. When I say westernized uh, epistemology or white left epistemology or things like that, it's not about color. It's about a positionality in power relations, you see? It's not about a geography, the West and the rest. It's about a positionality. So part of what happened is that this system has been very successful at colonizing also people in Latin America, Africa, and Asia. And so you have today Westernized elites there that have internalized the Eurocentric thinking, all of this, doing the same thing as the West was doing during colonial times, and now becoming the intermediaries, neo-colonial intermediaries of the global north. Okay, so. The problem here is not your color or your identity or is it's what your epistemology. That's what I'm calling attention to. Okay? And so what happened is that the colonization has been has touched our minds, our hearts, okay? And therefore you have today Christian centric, Western centric forms of Aymaras. Christian-centric, Western-centric forms of Islam. Christian-centric, Western-centric forms of Buddhism or of Yorubas. Because the, the colonial project hit with a strong force, the epistemologies of third world cultures. And now you have versions of those third world cultures that have been colonized from within, Okay, and call into, uh, you know, turning into some kind of Western-centric, Christian-centric version in the name of some kind of authentic Islam or authentic Aymara or authentic Buddhism or authentic Yoruba or whatever. You see? So, why I'm saying this? Because I don't want you to leave this room with the impression that you're going to now fight the power structures, okay? Because the West is not just out there, it's here and here. We have the West inside. This is the problem. And this is the most difficult problem. Because the the, the Western power structures, you can the outer structures are clear. And you can identify them and then you can build a struggle. The problem is what about the inner structures? And this is a problem because. If you fight outer structures without fighting inner structures, you become a Marxist. And the problem with that is that if you fight outer structure without inner structure, whenever you win the struggle, you come to power and you do everything again that you were fighting against. Look at 20th century socialism. It ended up reproducing everything they were fighting against, because they have the West inside themselves. They have Eurocentrism, capitalism, imperialism inside themselves. So now you have the Soviet Union began as a proletarian revolution and ended up a, an empire, <laughs> colonizing, invading countries, killing Muslims, killing people all over playing. Mean, you see the point? So that's why we need outer structure, inner structure at the same time. If you only find outer structure without inner structure, you become a Marxist. If you only deal with inner structure and don't deal without outer structure and social justice, you become a new age. New age? You become new age. You know what is New Age? No. You don't know what is New Age? Well, uh, New Age is this form of spirituality that is mostly white people appropriating all this spirituality from the Third World, you know, and turning it into some kind of, uh, well, distorting it, turning it into a, a commodity, and then you have white people that goes to and spend two weeks, I don't know, in in. In the Himalayas, and they come back, and then they're gurus of Buddhism. You
1: see,
0: <laughs> um, or you know, white people, you know, who who pass two weeks, you know, in a madrasa, I don't know, in Pakistan, and come back, and they are now the sheikhs, Okay, <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, this is serious. This is an appropriation, you know, of other traditions because they are, in fact, they are in crisis. There is also a spiritual crisis in the West. But instead of being humble, you know. Now, they want to turn the whole thing, the white supremacy thing and the arrogance and the thinking of themselves superior. Then they go and they become the experts of whatever. This is the new age thing. And then, and then they sell you whatever they're doing and, and charge you money. Okay? <laughs> and then, not only that, not only that, then the next thing is to say, we're wealthy because we are spiritually enlightened. People who are poor and... So it's, it's a form of spiritual fascism, you see, where they claim to be the New Age thing that they have, you know, the superiority now, and then reproduce the whole thing. You see what I mean? But they're not dealing with their egos. They're just reproducing their egos, you know, whatever, whatever they do. You see? And so our sick egos requires work with ourselves, But it cannot be work with ourselves where we leave the world intact with social injustices. We need to do both. Transformational doubt structure at the same time that we deal with inner structures. Why we need that? Because if you only find out a structure without dealing with inner structure, whatever you construct is going to be corrupted because you're going to again repeat all the problems you're fighting against. See the problem? And so this is why I want to emphasize on this question you know, and also Get you the sense that I'm not talking about outer structure over there and we are here as some kind of exteriority. No, we have the West inside ourselves. And that's part of the difficulty of decolonization. That today we have Western elites, Western mentality, Western whatever, okay, and, and we reproduce all the problems. So for that, you, we need to, to have both the inner structure and the outer structure struggle. Okay, and that you could see in many of the spiritualities that that's put there. You know, inner jihad, outer jihad, in Islam, or you you can see among certain versions of Buddhism also the same the same structure. You could see among the Yoruba, among the Aymaras in Latin America. I mean, you could see this all over the place. Okay, where you see this, let's put it this way: (laughs) non-Western spiritualities dealing with this question. But there are colonized versions of all of them that then pass or recycle some kind of authentic third world whatever, okay? Islam, Yoruba, Aymara, whatever. And this is what we need. Why decolonization requires a lot of work, because then you need to look at the history of your tradition, at the history of colonialism, and try to understand what is there. That has been internalized from that colonization process that today we recycle as some kind of authentic whatever, you see what I mean? Uh, that you know, that is just creating more problem than solution. Okay? Uh, anyway, I, I can give you many examples of this, but there is a metaphor I can give you. When I went to Morocco, I found that they said in the mosque uh, that Non-Muslim cannot enter the mosque. So I was kind of shocked by that because, I mean, in Muslim many I mean majority Muslim countries, people of non-Muslim can enter the mosque, and I was shocked to see this sign, in the in almost every mosque. It says in English, uh, you know, and in other language, that non muslims are forbidden from entering the mosque. Okay, and since the time of the Prophet non-Muslim who enter the mosque. So I asked someone, in when I was in Fes. I asked someone, why is this so? And someone came and started citing me hadiths, etc., about why is this so, I mean, I, that kind of thing. And I was, this is strange. But anyway, I, I keep digging into this and asking people, and finally, someone was telling me, hey, you know what? Since when this happened? Well, I know you heard about General Liote. That was the colonizer, French colonizer, okay? And it happened that the origin of this is coming from a, a general of the occupying forces of the French that passed this decree in great, you know, partly because there was a problem from the point of view of the colonizer that first they couldn't enter in the mosque with the, you know, because it would create a huge problem and people would react, you know, in a strong way. But on, on the other hand, they didn't want people from other spiritualities also entering the mosque and organizing the anti-colonial subversion there. So as part of the rule, also this was part of the colonial project to pass this decree to keep. Then it became habit. Then it became culture, culture practice, norm, etc. And then later on, you start justifying with whatever, okay? The Quran, Hadith, whatever, okay? And then. At, Take that, this as a metaphor of what I'm trying to say of how colonialism uh, colonized the theologies, the spiritualism, the cosmology, and the epistemologies from within. And so the decolonial project needs to look in a, with a critical eye at this, all these dimensions. It requires a lot of work to do that, you know? Because it's easier to just keep going with what you have and what you think is authentic and not look back and, say, and think twice about what, is, what, is, what, is, what are all these things coming from. Where it happened it was General Lute, Which is, I mean, it's a metaphor, but you could see the same thing happening in the st- structures of knowledge and in the theological structure themselves, that suddenly you have versions of Islam <coughs> that are almost like a mirror of the fundamentalist protestant readings of the Bible. And you could see versions of Wahhabism reproducing these methods of reading the Quran in similar ways as the way the, the, the Christian Protestant fundamentalist sects read the Bible. You know, so we need to, to dig into our own tradition, be that Islam, be that Aymara, be that whatever, because a lot of things have been internalized in our subjectivities, in our hearts, in our minds, but also in our traditions. And we need to take decolonization. It's also looking at that, okay? not just at the West over there. It's out at the West inside us.
2: There was a question here, one here, and one at the back. So if you want to go ahead.
5: It was a very interesting talk, and opened my eyes, I Say, there's one bit I found especially um, concerning, that I'm sure you would agree. In the 16th century, Constantinople was the jewel oh. of the world. Oh. Constantinople, Istanbul, the jewel of the world, the most advanced, <coughs> setting, most cosmopolitan, the wealthiest. Yet, in the 17th, we see, say, in scientific evolution, steam engine, all occurring in Europe. So why, despite being so far in the lead, was the Islamic world not being able to make that intellectual and technological jump, required to bring forth modernity and industrialization.
0: Thanks for the question. Uh, where did you read that? Which that the, where did you read, you're talking about the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. Where did you read, where, where did the Industrial Revolution happen? And where did you read that? You're saying that it was in Europe.
5: Yeah.
0: In which part of Europe? In Britain. In Britain. In the world? Yes. Yes. And so, uh, where did you read that? I can't tell you where I read that for the first time. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I read that when I was in third grade. And they were giving history about the Industrial Revolution. And when you're in high school, I also read that. I remember that. Because it's all over the world. Part of the Eurocentric thinking is to teach you the things. And what they. Show you in the is a long list of inventors, British inventors, that invented this machine, that machine, etc., etc., right? That's what you get. You read that in high school, right?
5: Yes, so therefore, would you um, point me to where these developers were in? Yes. So you you read this
1: in
0: high school. Now, the invitation I'm going to make to you is. That I think all these narratives we're reading in high school, we need to put them in question. I will tell you why. Who was the number one exporter of textile and apparel in the world in the 18th century? Yeah. Thank you. How did they produce all these things? What technology they use?
5: It's mass mobilization. Huh? A lot of people.
0: No, no, they have machinery. They have machines to produce textile. Okay? So the first Industrial Revolution was not England. It was India and China. That was where you had the first manufacturing industries in the world. Okay? Britain was totally isolated, and Europe in general from that. How did Britain get access? Okay, to all these technology. Mm, indeed. Huh? A question. Also how did no no but ask that's my question. How did Britain get access to the technology in India? What happened? I don't
5: think Steam Engine came
0: from India. Let's before we go to a steam engine, where did they get the technology, the know how of producing textile and analysis. How did that happen? Along the
5: silk roads. Huh? The silk roads going to give away. Yeah, where was that coming from? India. And China. And
0: China, OK? But how did the British manage to then turn upside down the whole thing, OK, and becoming now industrial economy and the main producers of Texas alpha in the world. You, you don't know how that happened?
5: No, I didn't know how that happened. How? I do not well. Huh? And that British arrived with a superior technology and then took it. No, no. It's called colonization. Yes, that's. The
0: British colonized India, destroyed the industrial base of India, destroyed. Took the technology, okay, <laughs> brought it to Manchester. London, Liverpool, etc., and began what later in history, because the victorious forces always rewrite history in their own convenience. They're going to tell you, we did the industrial revolution, they're going to tell you first that they did it first, so they totally obliterate, totally erase the history of China and India that before them were already having industries, textile, and were the number one producers in the world of that. They're not going to tell you, that. they're going to say, we have these people here who invented all this machinery. So we have higher IQ levels than the Muslims, than the Chinese, everybody else. That's the assumption. If you explain the Industrial Revolution in England based on the idea that there were these geniuses that created all this technology. No. What happened was they went there, they plundered India, they destroyed the industrial base of India, colonizing India, and turning India into an exporter of what? Tea for the afternoon teas here, and raw material for the same industrial revolution. And then they write history and tell you, me, and everybody in this room when you go to high school that the first plane of industrial revolution was in England, okay? And that the technology and everything is a creation of the geniuses of Britain. We forget. That's Eurocentric history. We forget who were the countries with the first Industrial Revolution and the technology that they developed. we forget all of that. We just rewrite history in our own convenience so that today, our common sense, which you just expressed, is shaped by these distortions and lies. Okay? And so next thing they did in the 19th century, because they destroyed the industrial base of India, and turn India into an agrarian export economy, OK? When India was exporting industrial goods. Then 200 years later, comes India, becoming independent in 1947. You know? And then, oh my god, they're so poor. The poverty in India, devastating. And then here comes why social sciences and say, why is it that the Indian people <laughs> There's so much poverty and famine. You know, hum- people are hungry there. Instead of saying 200 years of British colonialism destroyed the industrial base of India, they're going to say the following. Problem with the Indian people is that they have this belief that they, sh- you know, that they don't eat meat, they don't eat cow, they don't eat. It's their culture. They have traditional cultures. They're not <coughs> modern. And that's why they are in poverty. You you see how the whole thing keeps going in such a way that keeps distorting the history, and then we never end up talking. See, I asked you like four times, when did this happen? And the question of British colonialism never came up. And I'm not accusing you. I'm just saying it's it's significant, it's symptomatic that we don't go there in finding the explanation. We're always finding other ways to escape from the realities of colonization and the effects of that to the modern world and to the world we're living.
1: But
0: and then, in the 19th century, when they began the industrial revolution, they still have competition from China. China was much more powerful in industrial base okay, than Britain in the, until the 1840s. In the 1840s, how did the British manage to destroy the industrial base of China? Via <laughs> Opium war. And they went and destroyed the industrial base of China. And now, mid 19th century, Britain is the sole producer of textile and apparel. And now they call for free markets when they monopolize the markets. Now free markets. Now I monopolize, and now I call for free markets. After I have destroyed all my competition, you see. And then we ask ourselves, why is it that India there's so much poverty in India? Why is it that you know until the Chinese Revolution 49? There was so much poverty in China. And we never think back to say, okay, what is the role of British Empire in that? You see the point? And this year is where the colonial <coughs> mentality comes in, colonial historiography, etc. That, and that's why we need to decolonize all this thing because all of these are fairy tales. They're fairy tales from the point of view of the colonizer. They're not really serious narratives of history. I invite you to read the book of. John Hobson, you know the the the, the author of the, the the grandchild of that famous intellectual from Britain, John Hobson, who wrote Imperialism, from which Lenin got all these ideas of imperialism. His grandchild wrote about the origins of how they, you know, the, ori- the the origins of the East in the Industrial Revolution in the West. He has a book, John Hobson.
1: Mm-hmm. I don't
0: remember the exact title but you could Google it, you know? And in this book, he demonstrates, it's, it's a British scholar who look at this question and uh, shows how the British Empire, how they did this so-called industrial revolution, and show how they went on to destroy India and later China as a competition, all of that, how they stole the technology. And of course, when you colonize other people, you see, then. You destroy their infrastructure of knowledge production, you destroy their economy, you see, you put them to work for you, okay? And then you come back four hundred years later and say, why is it that Europe, after all, did it? And the Muslims went down. That was your original
5: question. There's one little bit of by simply as if all the technology therefore existed in the East. how was the backward island able to subdue and colonize without the of the that's Through that's
0: military technology. That's how they did it, military technology.
5: And, okay?
0: and the conquest of the Americas. It's through the conquest of the Americas and the enslavement of people in the Americas that the British got their wealth, you know, and, and also the Spaniards and all the Western powers to develop their military technology, and beat up the Ottomans in the Battle of Lep- Lep- Lepanto in the 16th century, you see? And later on, uh, you know, colonized other people with, with technology, of, of military technology. And they did it through plundering the Americas. That's how they got their wealth, and they were able then to move east and beat up all these other civilizations. Okay? You, this is what you need to be looking at. You need to look at colonial, my invitation is look at colonial history. Stop thinking from the point of view of high school texts, you see, about history. Because those high, high school texts are to completely a, a distortion and mythology, fairy tales, about history. And it's partly to make us get this common sense that, you know, we say naturally, oh, the British develop this technology. We have the first Industrial Revolution, we have, as if it was common sense. Who, who told you that? <laughs> you know? the, the Industrial Revolution was way before the British. The British, what they did was to go and destroy the competition, steal the technology, and then develop it further here. But you can develop further when you have plundered the other. You see the point? That's why the other civilizations, after they destroyed them by colonization, then they went down in their knowledge infrastructure for knowledge production, you see? But where did the Europeans got their modern science? Have you
5: think about that? Modern which?
0: Modern sciences. Modern that. sciences, or any field of science, they got it from Muslim civilization. That's how all this knowledge came to Europe, from Greek philosophy to all kinds of sciences, through Al-Andalus. That's how <coughs> all of that got here. Today we celebrate Copernicus, right? As now they stole that, not only they stole wealth, they stole knowledge from elsewhere, you see, and then recycled it as naturally inherent European. Today we celebrate Copernicus, but we forgot where Copernicus got his knowledge. Six hundred years before Copernicus, and now I think this year is a celebration, I don't know. I don't know how many centuries of Copernicus' birth or something, you know. And we celebrate Copernicus as the origin of something that Copernicus took from the school of Baghdad that 600 years before him has demonstrated that the Earth is not the center of the universe and that the Earth goes around the sun. <laughs> Look at the work of George Saliba, okay? George yeah. Saliba, historian of science at Columbia University, who wrote about Islamic. Uh, sciences, and the Rise of the Renaissance, uh, where he demonstrate how Copernicus' work was taken a lot of his formulas and even the diagrams and demonstration from the school of that, that, that 600 years before Europe.
3: Al-Bayoumi. Huh? The, scholar of, the, the scholar who was like specialized in this, Al-Bayoumi.
0: Al-Bayoumi, thank you very much, who was this, the famous it is, it was Islamic the, astronomer yeah. who have done the demonstrations. And how did that knowledge get here? Through the, the, the libraries of Al-Andalus. Because I have to say that they were burning the libraries. But every time they went to burn the libraries, they have someone next to the priests and the theologians going, the Christians, Christian, theologians were burning the libraries, taking out books that they found curious about knowledge, technology, and things like that. For, for example, Cardinal Cisneros, when they, he went to burn the library of Granada, he had someone who read Arabic next to him. And that person was checking the books, and they put aside all these other books that were about science and things like this. Okay? And that's how that knowledge moved this way, okay? through Islamic civilization. But we don't remember that. We don't associate that. Now what you read in your text is Copernicus. Where are the people who produce this knowledge? What's his name? Albayumi. thank okay, you. Yeah, you can Google it. Yeah, you can Google this guy and, and find it. Yes. <laughs> it's very easy, I mean. <laughs> yeah. With the technology we have today, we can right. get all this knowledge yeah. today. It's not yeah. difficult you know, to find all these things. But the problem is that if you don't ask the c- proper questions, you will never search for the right answers. You see, if you still think from the common sense of what we're learning in the textbooks in high school, or in the kind of thing that you get in Eurocentric universities, you will never raise the, the proper question, and you will never search for these things. Okay? Copernicus is one example, but you, we, can, we can mention many other examples in medicine, in chemistry, in all kinds of stuff. Okay? So uh, the, you know, the, the first attempt at flying is also you could find in Islamic civilization. Especially in the city of Cordoba. Someone flew over the city. Okay?
3: Abbas ibn Farnas. What's his name? Abbas
0: ibn Farnas. Thank you.
3: <laughs>
0: was, it wasn't the, the, the right brothers. You remember that? All <laughs> oh, the right brothers. It's not, all of this is fairy tale, my friend. Take all of that as garbage knowledge. That It, doesn't, it just helps to keep the power that be in place and to keep us thinking from that common sense. That is just. Garbage.
5: Well, um, thank you for being because They kind of. Okay. Thank you. Um, Over here.
2: I completely agree with you in that the process (coughs) of decolonization, hinges (coughs) crucially on socially and politically organising, and that. um, But then my question is therefore, how? What then do you see? um, Is the role of rational argument because it has to sit somewhere? We don't just get rid of it, but. It, it, it's not the primary factor, obviously, but um, what I'm saying is, when I'm asking rather who do I waste my breath on when I'm trying to convince um, that patriarchy is a thing? I'm not going to waste my breath on, you know, a university professor who grew up in the nineteen fifties, but probably there's someone else who is hinging
3: in the, the center, and it's like hmm, I need a bit of convincing, but I don't. You need it's the two. It's movement. not
0: either or. You need the two. You need the rational argument. You need the politics. You see. The proper strategy, the pro- you need the two. You cannot just go without having a, a strong argument about. Okay, you go and call for the colonial university, and then they say, "Okay, what do you mean by that? What do you propose?" And you have nothing to say. You see? So you need the rational arguments, you know, to to come up and and make a proposal. You see, and, and show how <laughs> it's better than what they have. Because I'm not calling to. Uh, lower down our standards of knowledge production. I'm calling for making it more rigorous, you see? Making it more complex, more, uh, more in- inclusive, all the knowledges, you see? And that takes a lot of work, that's not easy. You see, it's more, it's, it's rigorosity knowledge production, you see, what I'm calling for. So I'm not calling to, oh, let's lower down the standards. No, let's, let's bring the standard to a higher level than this thing. This is provincial. This is very narrow. I mean, look at the name this brother just mentioned of scientists that are never discussed in this university and never mentioned, you know, unless you are in Islamic studies and maybe you have a professor there that might bring this question but in the rest of the university nobody cares. Nobody mentioned. We keep repeating the same mythologies, you know, and without looking carefully at these things. Okay. So this is, uh, this will be my call, you know. I think
2: there was a question at the back.
3: Yeah. Um, I was interested in what you said about the two different forms of racism. The racism that other people don't have a soul and their are soulless being and they can, or they're biologically inferior, and the cultural racism. Um, <coughs> so I think we all want to widen the circle of um, people who we accept as being human and similar to us and like us. Um, and you talked about Kant and Descartes. and Argued that Kant was a racist and didn't accept anyone south of the Pyrenees as being properly human. But would, could you argue that um, ideas on their own can have some momentum, even if the, the originators of these ideas might be racist? One of the contradictions of the American Revolution, it's a revolution which is led by slave owners, some of the largest slave owners in history, um, but nevertheless, the founding document of America even if they say black people are white, three-fifths white people, they still have some of the ideas of human rights and the ideas of rights which then develop um, to form some of the things that push back the white. In no, the circle.
0: Human rights and the recognition of rights of people you can find in many other civilizations before Europe. Why is it that we're making the white planters of, of the USA Now, the origins of human rights. I mean, you can see this question about rights and questions about the humanity, uh, you know, in many other civilizations, this this question (coughs) is already there, you know, very clearly formulated. The the concept of human rights these people are using is a very uh, incoherent concept because, in fact, they don't include as part of humanity the majority of humanity. So, what kind of human rights is this? What they're doing is turning backwards notions of human dignity that have been there for centuries you know, uh, and for <laughs> thousands of years in many other cultures. <laughs> now they come and turn the concept of human dignity into human rights where there are some people who are more human than others. So why are you celebrating? Again, you're bringing the idea in your assumption is the idea of progress is that somewhere or another this is progress because before these white Europeans, people didn't have these notions. Where do you get this idea that there's no notion of human dignity in other civilizations, in other cultures? It's there 4,000 a year in many places. But what happened is that European narrative of history keeps coming down or coming back to the white man as the origin of everything. And this is what we read, and I'm not blaming you. It's something that is beyond all of us. It's it's the narratives that we're getting, you see, in in the history books, in the textbooks, in the speeches here in this Westernized university. It's what we hear. And so concept of human dignity precedes the Europeans way back for thousands of years, many other civilizations. And they didn't have this crazy notion of human rights that is really very limited notion (coughs) the moment you think that someone uh, it, who is a human being is a, is a slave that is animal-like. You see? This, so why are you making the American slave owners now they celebrate them as the origins of human rights? Uh, this is crazy, man. This is colonization. And it's worse, man, with all respect, okay? But look at the comments you're making here. What I mean... Think I
3: agree with you when you say that you're an ethnic minority, you'll be better off living in the Muslim world than the Christian world. But even in the Muslim hey, do world... Do you agree know with what? No. For most of human history, if you're a Jew, for instance, you'll be better off living in, in the Muslim world than the Christian um, West. But even in the Muslim world, Jews, Christians, and Muslims to all respect as people of the book, but they're not given total equality. And, and, and if you're not part of the people of the book, if you're Hindu United, it would be, be considerably worse there's still not a notion of equality, which is developed in the modern times. And I think we
0: should accept the contradictions in But, but look at the concept of equality of modern times, OK? If you look, let's take, you're mentioning Muslims, right? You're mentioning Muslims. As an example, people have no notion of equality, right?
3: i never said that. I said that in. So what are you saying? I'm going to take, I'm saying that, the notion of equality and that all humans have to be equal is not the same as human dignity. I think the notion of human rights is okay. a different thing. Okay, so dignity. you're saying
0: that, they have, that the notion of equality emerged with the West and with the modern times.
3: I think thinkers like Descartes and Kant get some of the credit.
0: I agree with you. They get the credit, but that's not necessarily accurate. Do <laughs> <laughs> you see the point? One thing is getting the credit from this institution, another thing is, is it's true or not. That's another question. Okay? So, I'm going to ask you something. When the slave rebellions in the Americas, okay, did they need Kant or Descartes to think about equality and dignity? Are the people doing the Haitian Revolution in the Americas? <coughs> reading Kant, to know about human dignity, and about equality, and liberty? I don't know if you get my point. Why are you making the white man, the same ones who are the, 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 the owners of slaves and plantations, okay, as the quintessential uh, origin of concepts like human rights, and now you're saying equality? In the Muslim, you mention the Muslim. You say, you know, the Muslim did not have the concept of equality. Right? Now, the point I'm trying to, I'm going to make you is the following. Part of what happened with the West is that they appropriate knowledge from everybody, and then they recycle it as naturally inherently European men. When this knowledge is, you could find it in all the cultures. And what happened is, like I mentioned with Copernicus. It's a good example. He took all this knowledge from the School of Baghdad and from an astronomer in the School of Baghdad and now recycled it as his own knowledge. And now today, you come and say, oh, it's thanks to European sciences, modern sciences, that we know that the Earth is not the center of the universe and goes around the sun. Why? Why we say that now? Because the epistemic side, we destroy the knowledge,s the memory of those knowledge,s we rewrite the history in our own convenience, and then we recycle it as if it was natural, inherently European modern sciences.
6: And then we do the
0: same thing with concept of democracy, concept of equality, concept of human rights, and you can make the list. All of these are, but the difference, you can find in the Quran concept of equality. Now that you bring in the question of Muslim, that they don't have a con- No, they have a concept of equality, but they have a different concept of equality than the West. The West comes, take the concept, and make of equality a universal abstract. <coughs> French Revolution. We're all equals, right? But then it's a universal abstract. It's not a concrete concept. It's, it's a complete universal abstract of equality, OK, where you never land down into what exactly this means. Because there are some people that fall into, we extend equality to them because they're part of the human, and the other people that are part of the animal world, you know, the people we have inferiorized, are not, cannot be equal to us. So and the same thing happened with human rights, all of this. But the difference is that instead of having a concept of equality that is abstract and disentangled from justice, In the Quran, you have a concept of equality that's always subordinated to the question of justice. Because you could have equal relations that are unjust. And you can have unequal relations that are just. And you can have equal relations that are just, and unequal relations that are unjust. Look at all these four possibilities. But now, I'm putting the question of justice at the center, not the question of equality. Because in the name of equality, you're going to commit a lot of injustices if you do like Western modern men that put rhetorically equality at the center in a very hypocritical way, hypocritical way, okay? Put equality at the center, and then justice is eliminated from the conversation. In the Quran and in Muslim tradition, justice comes first. And then it, you, you have equality. There's a concept of equality. You can find before Kant and before all the Western philosophers of the last 500 years, 1,000, 1,400 years ago, you could find concept of equality. The problem is that in Muslim uh, uh, scholarship and civilization, you don't put equality as an abstract. You always put equality subordinated to justice. Because in the name of equality, you're going to commit many injustices if you do it in a universal <coughs> abstract disentangled from <coughs> the notion of justice. You see the point? So here is where where you need to be careful, because now you're putting the origins of equality, human rights, all this stuff, again, in the Western man, and lose sight how you have other civilizations, other cultures that have concept of equality, concept of human dignity, all of that, before Europe. Before Europe, long time ago. Why is it that we, again, put forward Western man as the origin. Western modern man, the same ones that are enslaving the world and colonizing the world. Why is it that we put them back in the privileged position? and <coughs> Because of what I've been trying to describe to you from the beginning of the, my lecture. That, that is that we are falling into epistemic racism. You see? Because of the genocide epistemics of the long 16th century, we privilege Western man as the origin of everything. And then they tell us these fairy tales that they are the origin of all this knowledge, all these concepts, etc. And that's false. The Zapatistas, they have a concept, the Tojo Laval in Mexico, of equality. But they say for us, equality is not like the French Revolution. It's equality for them means we're equal because we're different. Meaning by that, we can start discussing equality once you recognize and accept my human dignity as a different culture, as a different spirituality, as a different epistemology, then we can begin the conversation about equality. But to make you equal to me, okay, meaning by that that I'm going to make of you a Western Christian uh, 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 you know, culture that I'm going to assimilate you and that's the condition possible for equality, that's already a colonial project. So we are equal because we are different. That's where the conversation begins for the Zapatista, indigenous people in the south of Mexico. That's another concept of equality, different from the West, you see? But I I invite you to think, why is it, or what kind of history you read, where you are thinking that the concept of human dignity goes back to the Western slave owners of the USA and the concept of equality goes back to Immanuel Kant. I mean, tell me where you got that history, really. Ask yourself, where did you read that, where you got that? And I invite you to read other alternative histories, because that's Eurocentric history. That's what they want us to believe, that after all, Western man is superior, and that's why they invented all these things.
2: So we have a question here. And I think that's probably the last one. We've got time for I just want to
6: make a point related to that. Um, what you were saying about Descartes, saying, I am God, that that being that moment of universalization and at the same time, specific situation of the Western European man saying, I am God, the giver of human rights. So if you you say you're God, you're (coughs) separate from humanity. And you can give human rights. But I just wanted to also add that
0: they give human rights because yeah. they're God and I give you human
6: Yeah. And by becoming more like white man, you can become more like God. But I just want to also add that that notion that I am God does not originate in Descartes and stuff. Um, Sufis were saying that in the 12th century, um, probably before. But then. with
0: a different connotation, with and a very different than um, situation
6: this one.
3: and yes. practice. You said um, I am justice. I'm sorry? He said, I am justice, not I am, I am God. You're talking about Allah. I al-ash. think
6: there's, there's different interpretation. There's different, I mean, who are you talking about? Yeah. I'm not talking about Allah. I'm talking oh, about okay. um, um Fazlullah. Um, uh, there's many Sufis that said different things which are similar to that. Yeah, I think Rumi said similar things. Fazlullah said something. Yeah, but meaning
0: something different because one thing is practice. you say I'm God because I am superior to you. Yeah. Another thing is saying, you know, we are all sons of God or we are all... You see, that's another thing. You see, different from saying I am, you know, God-like and my knowledge is God-like and the rest of the humanity or human beings are just animal-like.
6: But I wanted to say so, about this, this idea of ra- about thinking and arriving at, you know, rationality. That, that was what the Sufis were doing. They were interpreting dreams. They were... Talking through things that were discursive, they were making poetry, and that's how they, you know, it was, it was not what's called rationality by Europeans, but it was a, it was a discursive tradition, um, and it's a very different situation from. Like, I think I like what you said about I am the exterminator. You know, I, I, uh, I am my an exterminator, and that's a particular situation, particular person that says it. A white man in Amsterdam. I like that you point, pinpointed that place in Amsterdam, North. Um, so it's very different from what the Sufis were saying. Yeah. Um, and while I got your attention, I wanted to invite people to a URSS at Cambridge Cemetery at the, the grave of Rema Magdali Giordani um, on the Saturday the 13th of February at midday. So everyone's welcome to
0: attend. Thank you. Thank you for the intervention. I just want to say one last thing that is very important in terms of what you said, which is that if you're summing carefully, Westerns, what the West did was to appropriate not only plundering and appropriate wealth from other places, and that's how the rise, you can explain the rise of the West this way, but also appropriating knowledge. And what happened in the appropriation of knowledge, the majority of them, because of the frontier with Islamic civilization, that knowledge, they got it through Islamic civilization, because there were also knowledge produced in India and China that came through Islamic civilization, Islamic civilization was always in in really, that Pyrenees mountain,
6: you mentioned Pyrenees mountain. Yes. That's where these
0: That's were. where they are. And so I, the point is, they were bringing that knowledge was arriving to Europe through Islamic civilization. Okay, because remember, Islamic civilization was a corridor that goes from from the Atlantic all the way to you know to Africa. You know what we call today Middle East, South Asia, East in East China. Okay. Uh, uh, Indonesia, all the way to Mindanao in the Philippines. So it's a, it was a global corridor, not just of commodities, but also knowledge, OK? So a lot of that knowledge of other civilizations. remember, Muslims were translating from all the knowledges. You know, and, and so all those texts arrived to, to European territories through that corridor, okay? Islamic, civilization, Andalusia. Okay? And then what happened was that when they appropriate the knowledge, they leave out the spirituality. They just turn it into some kind of technicality. And the problem with that is the following. If you have a science without spirituality, you have science without ethics. And if you have a science without ethics, you have a science with no limits. And if you have a science with no limits, you have a science where everything goes. And if you have a science where everything goes, you have genocidal sciences destruction of life in the planet, destruction of human beings. Because then it got fetishized, it got idolatric. It becomes an end et- in itself. Science becomes the new idol. You see? And so...
6: Huh? That's the thing, that's the point. In yes,
0: Yes, and that's where now, now you can, you know, in the name of science, because science is more important than anything else, I can build a nuclear bomb to destroy human beings. Now I can, you know, develop a technology of extermination of populations. Or, you know, because science is science, you see? And well, it's true. new it's still It's the new people god, who are those yes. Men. And that's what I'm saying. The appropriation that the West did of sciences from other civilization cultures was also very problematic because they left out the spirituality. And they just got <coughs> the, the techniques with no spirituality. And that sign without spirituality is sign without ethics. Sign without ethics is a sign where everything goes. And a sign where everything goes has no limits. And therefore you have there the seeds of a science destructive of life. You see? And this is something I wanted to bring in because it's very important to the point you just made. And if you watch carefully the technologies used by the West is based on the dual Cartesian dualism between nature Okay, nature and the human. That dualism we were discussing before. Okay, that is a secularization of the Christendom dualism of Constantine that I was discussing earlier. No? That, that division where nature is exterior to the human and nature then is other forms of life that we consider to be inner objects or inferior forms of life to the human, we can destroy them because it's a means towards an end. And because you're thinking from dualistic notion, you think that destroying that won't affect you. And then any technology you build upon that rationality, you have there the rationality of destruction of life. What if we build technology with the notion of tawit or the notion of pachamama? Or notions that are unity with difference. You see? Diversity within unity. If you build technology like that, you don't have any more the word nature. It's a Western centric construct. Now you have for humanity. Now you have no different forms of life mm-hmm. coexisting inside a cosmos. Where if you destroy that one, you destroy yourself because you are inside the same. It's not dualistic, you see. And therefore you need to pay attention to what you're doing and think about reproduction of life, where all those forms of life are not a means towards another end and exterior to the human. They are the conditional possibility for human life and for all forms of life. And if you destroy it, you destroy yourself. And therefore, any technology built upon the notion of Tawit or the notion of Pachamama or other cosmological notions have the seeds of reproduction of life. But we don't have that because the way capitalism developed is through a a Western civilization and dualistic Cartesian logic that is destructive of life. And that's why all these technologies that we have, that we call progress, are just destroying the planet. And we don't know which species, including human species, will survive Western civilization. And I'm saying Western civilization because if you watch carefully, anything good about the West, then they celebrate as Western. Anything bad, they say, oh, the human. Oh, it's the human. We are so destructive of the planet. We human. No, it's not we human. Many civilizations before, with all their problems critique we can make, there's not being one as destructive of life as this one. You see the point? It's, it's not being one as destructive. So it's not the human. It's Western civilization, and it's <coughs> genocidal rationalities that are being this, this thing that's is so simple, dualistic idea. Anything you do with that cosmology any technology you build has the rationality of destruction of life. So you need another cosmological principle because technology is not neutral. Technology has cosmological visions in it, you see? And so other cosmological principles like Tahuit or Pachamama, or other notions like that are holistic, can build technology reproductive of life, not destructive of life, you see the point? But capitalism is already, a Western-centric system. You know? It's already colonized from within by Western notions, civilizational logics. And that's why it's so destructive. It doesn't have to be that way. It could have been otherwise. You know? But it's the way it is historically, because it was always colonized from within by civilizational logic of the West.
2: Thank you, everyone, for your contributions and for staying, you know, three hours uh, on a cold evening. (laughs) We both very briefly mentioned Decoloniality Europe. If you want to know more, please do leave us your emails and we will put you on on the mailing list for events here, other parts of Europe, summer schools, all sorts of things that are going on. Thank you again, Ramon. Thank you again. Thank you for the
0: invitation. Thank you for your patience.
2: Thank you for everyone who helped organize. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Where can we listen to it? Uh, I will hopefully add it to the Islamic Human Rights Commission website very shortly, and I will get a message to Husna to do it. Okay. Yeah, please send, <laughs> send the link to everybody. Website details yeah. in this, so just pick it up yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>